Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, licensed professional counselor. In today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Jeff Kane, who is the host of a podcast called The Forest and the Trees. We are going to be diving deep into religious trauma, healthy spirituality, and the psychology of deconstruction. We are going to really cover a lot of items here. And you might wonder, what does this have to do with psychology? Well, it has to do with the psychology of humans, where we came from, and our myths, and our practices, and our religions, and our spirituality, as well as the philosophical points behind a lot of religion. We are going to also deep dive into talking about Christianity and Catholicism, some of the history there, um, some of the Bible, different interconnections that we see, and uh, we're also going to talk about, of course, healthy spirituality and practices as well. So this is going to be quite a different episode than you're probably used to, and I hope you enjoy it. And before we get into the show, I just wanted to make a small disclaimer that some of you might have emotional reactions to this, and I totally understand as a therapist Everyone is entitled to their own opinions and their own reactions. In fact, I'm hoping for feedback on this episode. Jeff and I are curious as to what people think about it. But I will say this. Unless you have listened to the entire episode, please do not take a section here or a section there out of context and send us an email about it. Because we do try to cover the positive parts of spirituality at the end. And uh, anyway, I hope you appreciate it. Welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast, special edition. Jeff Kane, thank you for joining me today. Hello. Yes. Thank you for having me. This is great. Yes. Because this is a special edition, I sort of want to explain what we're talking about a little bit before we talk about why you're here and what your expertise is. And essentially, I am going to dive into some controversial topics that I normally don't really go into because of my role as a therapist. Um, And some of those topics are religious trauma, healthy spirituality, which I think is not too controversial, and the psychology of deconstruction uh, and deconstructionism, which is mostly going to be focused on Christianity and some of the history of Christianity and some of the dogma and teachings of modern and uh, pre-modern Christianity, as that's the religion that both of you and I grew up in. Correct. Yeah. I just want to put out a disclaimer. This is my disclaimer, Jeff, and then you can talk about your disclaimer, and then we'll talk about why you're here, too, and why I'm here doing this. Um, sure. I, I do not want to dissuade any of my listeners or any of the people that I possibly work with or anyone that goes to our clinic from following any sort of faith. I think if you feel called to follow a faith, that you should do that, and you should practice it. And you should really get into it, and you should really work on yourself in that faith context. I think it can be very healthy to do so. I'm not trying to rip on religion in general um, or take on an all-knowing stance like I know the truth. I just have dabbled and dealt with this stuff since I was a kid, and I know a lot about it. And so I'm going to just say some opinions in here. And I've dabbled in a lot of stuff, you know, uh, that you know, is critical and also positive about their religion. Um, That's kind of my disclaimer. And I think that if you are a person who's looking as a skeptic or as an atheist or as a Christian or as a Catholic, actually, this podcast may help you in some way. If you're a person who's been 
uh, hit with religious trauma, I definitely think this podcast could help you. Um, people that are looking for what is healthy spirituality, because oftentimes when people are in a religion, they just like dot, dump that religion and find something else. And that's, they use the same unhealthy habits that they did in the first religion in this, in the new spirituality that may be the opposite. And I think for some of you, this is just kind of an opening up to deconstructionism. I'm not a deconstructionist in terms of my you know, education. It's just something that's kind of come up. Uh, and so that being said, Jeff, let's talk about you and your disclaimer and why you're here a little bit. And you are in uh, the host of a podcast, the Forest and Trees podcast. Yes. And that is a conversation between a skeptic and a pastor. And I gather that you may be the skeptic. Correct. Yes. I, I play the role of the skeptic in this particular podcast. So yeah, I, w- I was born and raised in a evangelical Christian home. And I, I carried that with me through uh, early adulthood. I'd say my early 20s, I was still a very committed Christian and wanted to like serve God and do ministry. I worked in a church for many years and kind of late 20s, I started deconstructing, uh, started eventually losing my faith, eventually fully deconverted. Now I'd say I no longer consider myself a Christian uh, hesitant to say what what I call myself, whether I'd call myself an atheist or not. I think it's it certainly would be fair to call myself that. But yeah, I, I don't consider myself super anti Christianity. Um, I have a lot of family and friends who are very devout Christians, and I wanted to start this podcast uh, with with a friend of mine who was a pastor. And uh, the reason I wanted to was because I'm I'm still very curious about Christianity. I think there's a lot of really fascinating ideas in the Bible, within Christianity, within the teachings of Jesus. So, yeah, I just really enjoy kind of dissecting all those things, talking to people of various faiths about what they believe and why. And uh, similarly to you, Paul, I don't want to dissuade anyone or or force anyone to deconvert or force anyone to change their beliefs if if they don't want to. I, I don't think, like, the world needs to convert everyone to atheism to become a better place or anything like that. But I think the religious dialogue and interfaith dialogue is, is a really interesting thing that I've been just super curious about recently. Excellent. And just a little bit more on your background, you did actually go to a Bible college and work for a megachurch. So you have been not only a participant, but you actually were like really in some of very formal parts of the religion itself. Yes, correct. Exactly. Yep. I yep, went to Bible college, which I, I don't know if your listeners like necessarily know what that is, but basically, you know, undergraduate education where, you know, you learn like regular stuff too. I got a regular liberal arts degree and studied marketing, graphic design and stuff like that, but also got a, an extensive Bible education where, you know, I had classes like Old Testament history, New Testament history, um, evangelism and missions where you learn about how to share your faith and then like, um, exegesis and like different ways of studying the bible you know those the full like undergraduate education on just like biblical studies as well as uh you know other liberal arts kind of stuff excellent that's good to know and yes i have a varied background because i went to various parochial schools meaning like kind of mainstream Christian schools. And I also went to a evangelical school for a little while and then also public schools. So I had a kind of a look at both sides of it. Uh, I liked public school a lot more, but that's my experience. Um, 
And I want listeners to know, we're going to hit a bunch of topics here, just as a little preview. Uh, We're going to talk about mythology, religious trauma. We're going to go even into some of our pet peeves about theology. Hell doctrine is a big, fun friend of mine that I love to talk about when talking about the... uh, the religion of Christianity. We're actually also going to get into some really positive stuff as well. Um, some stuff about Joseph Campbell, Rain Wilson's new book, different things like that. So I just want to give a preview to the listeners. But I I have an extensive background of reading the Bible ever since I was a little kid. Um, was brought up reading the Bible, learning about the Bible, uh, being forced to sing different songs, pledging my allegiance to the religion uh, mm-hmm. at a very young age. So I didn't know any other reality until I was older and I did not have anyone dissuading me from the religion. In fact, everyone was trying, everyone around me seemed to be at least partially involved or kind of what I would call, um, you know, somebody who goes to church on Christmas and Easter and they would kind of say, Oh yeah, that's good. I like that. You know? And, and then the, the political candidates on both parties, the, the national parties all always said that they were some type of either Catholic or Protestant. And so I, no one really was dissuading me. I didn't find some book in a, in a store. I just started going, this doesn't make sense. The more and more I read about this, it doesn't make sense. And um, I didn't like some of the things that the religion s- kind of did and and how they did it. And so I'm going to get into that. So this is just a little, I'm going to throw a big, big umbrella out there. And that's, I'm going to hear your comments, Jeff. Okay. So some people believe that religion is a way how humankind is attempted to make sense of existence. And in some people's estimation, according to the book Sapiens and other such books, uh, we've been doing this for about 25,000 years. Uh, Only in the few recent centuries has mankind moved into new ways of seeking meaning, such as reason and logic, and that that was more in the um, age of enlightenment and um, that sort of thing in the 1600s and post, and then most recently uh, embracing the scientific method, which is a way of going, okay, we've proven this in this context, and then, okay, you're welcome to now disprove it or make a new experiment to see if it still holds true in a larger context. And um, so it's kind of like, this is the truth for now, scientific method, but it can be disproven at any time. Um, Whereas versus religion, spirituality is a practice, can be healthy and wonderful and lovely. Um, But I am going to go out here on my opinion that I think spirituality or religion, when it becomes an impingement on others' autonomy, including their body or their mind, is dangerous and can become violent very quickly. Uh, the history of the church and religion will show that. This podcast, uh, we're going to explore that, um, mostly dealing with Christianity. So that was my kind of big overarching thing. What are any comments on that? Yeah, there's there's a lot there. I, I think I agree with most of it, at least. Uh, you know, that, that's an interesting statement when you're talking about the, the difference between science and religion and the way that... Um, Religion is kind of based is kind of unchanging, right? And it's based on these sacred texts that are unalterable. And you know, scientists will often criticize religion on this basis and say, like, that's the the advantage of science is it's more dynamic because it's ever changing. Every time a theory is disproven with a new and updated version of it, that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I think I mostly agree with that. If that is a, a major problem with religion, is like we've got this one book and we're stuck with it. Um, I guess that on the other hand, religion does just have a way of still adapting with the times and like taking the same text and reinterpreting it over and over again as, as times change, you know, like the idea of 
literal six-day creationism is probably the most obvious example of that within Christianity where you know people used to just literally believe that's where the universe came from, just God created everything in six days on the seventh he rested. You know, there, there's some Christians who are still holding out to that, but I'd say the majority of Christians, at least the ones that I'm familiar with in my life, they believe in evolution, they believe the universe is billions of years old, and they say, well, it's not six literal days. We can we can find ways to reinterpret these things. So, yeah, just one comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good comment. And I think you're going into the reinterpretation in terms of the fact that people have studied the book of Genesis and the way it was written and basically interpreted the opening passages as a poem written by mm-hmm. a Hebrew scholar to basically show of the way that a god, a monotheistic one god, created these sort of things and these days are metaphorical and it's just it's a way of showing God's power and different things like that. And uh, that's been kind of studied a lot in different books. Um, <clears throat> we're going to name a lot of books towards the end, so stay tuned for that, where you can kind of get into this sort of thing if that's what you're in. Um, yeah, I think that's an interesting point, because I was going to talk about religious trauma first. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, but, go ahead. That's... Well, let's go there. Let's go there, because we're going to weave in and out of it. Because I, okay. I want to get into this, what this is, literalism and certainty, which we're going to get into that because that really is a big pet peeve of mine. But uh, here we go. My statement I'm going to say is this. Humans evolved in community. Uh, we know that Homo sapiens were able to build communities of large amounts of people um, thousands and thousands of years ago using a story when finally oral language was um, a thing. And, and and that they were able to organize for war and for rituals and for gathering resources, whereas we believe the Neanderthals traveled in smaller packs of maybe 12 and 20. Someone's going to write in about this. It was somewhere around there. And thus, the genetic diversity wasn't as good. And they had other health problems because of that also weren't able to maybe say the story. That's one theory of why homo sapiens, um, as the, as the, uh, what most of us have in us, by the way, we, if you've checked your DNA test, you may still have some Neanderthal in you, um, because there was crossbreeding, but we were able to make these stories and make meanings. And so I think based on my psychological background, my psychology background and reading anthropology, that humans thrive in a safe community. They thrive around people that they feel like they can rely on. And we see this in mental health because when people are very isolated, it usually amps up their symptoms of whatever they're dealing with in a not a good way. Um, And not everyone's looking for for community, but I do think a lot of people in modern society nowadays, we're talking about 2023, are drawn to a spiritual group or a religion for a sense of community. And... I think that is where religious trauma comes in uh, because oftentimes people say, okay, well, this group has said we are in touch with God. Literally our pastor or our priest will go to Christianity, talks mm-hmm. to God all the time. And he's praying for you, usually a male, sometimes a female. And God in their terms in Christianity is a male, which is very bizarre to me. But anyway, we'll get into that as we go. But here's where we're starting. We're starting with sanctuary trauma, religious trauma. So people feel safer in these communities because you have an authority figure saying, I'm in touch with God, I'm praying for you. But yet oftentimes, some we we you don't have to like make up things in a conspiracy theory to read Every single sexual abuse, power and control and abuse, uh, similar to domestic violence situations that come out of churches daily, uh, Mm -hmm. weekly, you read in the news, um, 
major pastors, uh, you know, in the Christian church have been accused of this and uh, also some convicted. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember his name, but there was a guy uh, who was recently passed away and it came out, he had like a worldwide ministry and it came out uh, later. That he had Ra- Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias, Zach- right. Yeah. Who mm-hmm. had abused hundreds and hundreds of women, including children in Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, and his family had been covering it up the whole time. And we don't have to go far to read about the Catholic priests who've molested children for decades. Mm-hmm. When people get power and control and it's not checked by authorities, like a corporate board or a real board or peers in some way in society, oftentimes power is abused. And so people suffer sanctuary trauma. They go to a church for help. And the next thing you know, they're being abused. They're being victimized because they are in a vulnerable place. So that is a little bit about why some people have religious trauma. I also think people have religious trauma because of the actual belief systems, which we'll get into. But what are your Mm -hmm. comments right now about kind of like the religious trauma that some people might experience in the church? Yeah, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's very real, as you say, I mean, of course, the, the more extreme examples involve like sexual abuse and all of those kinds of things, which, yeah, you, you rightly point out, uh, have gone unchecked for far too long. And the the church has kind of gotten away with um, the the public's trust, I suppose they, they've convinced people that because, because we're good people who have, have your children's best interests in mind, you don't need to, check in on things and you know very very sadly that's that's come home to roost now and i think you know the, the church has lost the public's trust in a lot of ways because of all the the scandals we've seen so yeah cer- certainly that's uh, the most extreme form of religious trauma i i'll say for myself i have not i was not abused in the church or anything like that so i um i'm not a, a victim in that sense i i think that you know the the kind of like popularization of the term deconstruction and the the way that like a lot of millennials people like my age who are, have a similar background the way that we were all brought up with certain beliefs and are now only now kind of looking back and re-examining things you know I, I I'm not I'm sort of undecided about it I'm not sure if if abuse or trauma is too strong of a word which is kind of it's yeah I'm, I'm still deciding on that but I would I would say that that's evidence of sort of this this milder, broader, more uh, ambient version of of trauma that you know maybe an entire generation of a certain religious group was was gifted in their childhood. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think that's very valid because, um, like you said, not all of it's sexual abuse or power, people's money being taken away. Those are the obvious examples, and they're varied. But there is this idea that. Um, and I'm not saying they're totally responsible for this because I do believe the people in the church believe this stuff wholeheartedly. Yeah, but I think yep. I think oftentimes I hear things coming out of the church that I know about relationship advice, for instance. Pastors will do marital or couples counseling with people. Mm-hmm. And I'm a therapist and I hear what is said and it is completely against what any therapist in in um in a with a degree or has read books or studies on how relationships work would advise, right? Sometimes it's also totally in line with it, right? But it's just so off the charts sometimes because it depends on the person's background and have they done any self-examination. For instance, I remember a time when I was in church and this person was glorifying this lady 
who should have divorced her husband. He was abusive. He beat her. He drank. He took her money. All this. And every mm-hmm. and her story was to the pastor. Every year, I'd make him a birthday cake, and I would celebrate his birthday, even though he was such an alcoholic, and he needed help and wouldn't get help. And they were like saying, what a strong, godly woman to stay in that marriage, because God has created marriage to be a sancti- sanctified thing, or whatever, this sort of rationalization. And I'm thinking, this woman is a, de- a, a, a victim of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um you told her and you encouraged her to stay in this marriage. That was the other thing. The church was encouraging her to stay because divorce is a bad sin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. God, these sort God of things, mm-hmm. these sort of opinions can be terrible. Um, another thing is somebody loses a child and they're grieving. And instead of sitting with the person and being with them in their grief and sort of ministering them in that way, they will come up with different Bible verses or say, everything happens for a reason or they're in heaven right now with Jesus. These sort of like, what I would call spiritual bypassing things that I think can be traumatizing for people because they aren't the lived experience. I Mm -hmm. don't know that everything happens for a reason. If I just lost my child, I'm going to be very upset and feel like my world has been rocked. How do I know what reason that is? Second of all, I can't see my child up there with Jesus. My child's not communicating with me. I don't know. Right. So these sort of things can be traumatizing for people. I don't, I'm not trying to say that the church is trying to do that. Right. Whereas a person with power in the church could abuse somebody intentionally, which they certainly do all the time. But I do think that, um, that could be traumatizing for somebody who goes in for help. They're in a very vulnerable spot. And just as a therapist, we have a, we, we have a great responsibility as a therapist to do no harm, same as a doctor. But, um, I think with the, with the, uh, with it's so such a big topic, but with churches, they're not held to that same standard. You know, they, they give you philosophical ideas. Now, some churches do great grief work. Okay. I'm not kind of rip on all churches. I'm just saying that I've seen that come out and people come to therapy feeling completely horrified about that. And even worse, if their child is quote unquote in hell, which we'll get to Mm -hmm. back to you, Jeff. Yeah, the so, right sexual ethics, the the way the church treats marriage and divorce is a huge one. We we talked about this recently on our podcast because we're reading through the book of Romans right now and the, the format of the podcast is I just uh, we we go through a chapter at a time and I just ask Jeremy questions. Jeremy's the pastor, my co-host on the on the podcast where it's, I'm my role is to kind of like poke holes and like Broad things and his role is to come up with a defense or an explanation of how, you know, how he makes sense of all these things. And I really, I was really curious about what his stance on divorce would be because I uh, just tell you know about Jeremy's position on almost everything I ask him. He always defaults to Jesus, you know, like, cause there's, there's so many problematic parts of the Bible, but uh, Jesus is <laughs> relatively clean. I would say he's, you know, he teaches charity and nonviolence. And, uh, you know, I, I really resonate with, with a lot of Jesus's teachings. D- divorce is one where I, I differ with what, what Jesus says, according to the gospel accounts, because he specifically says like, God hates divorce. There's basically no excuse for divorce other than infidelity. And I, yeah, to me, that seems just completely short-sighted and ridiculous that he wouldn't give a qualifier for abuse, neglect, just general unhappiness. So, so I asked Jeremy about this, um, and you know, you can look up the episode if you want to hear what what he has to say for himself. But he, yeah, he basically agreed and said, yeah, this is what Jesus says in the text. But I can't, in good conscience, like advise someone to stay in an abusive marriage. Like, of course, that's damaging. So I I applaud Jeremy for that. For he he is less rigid than you know a lot of pastors have been historically as 
as you're saying, many people sadly have been trapped in abusive marriages for for the rest of their lives because their church won't grant them a divorce or shames them away from pursuing divorce or just teaches that divorce is never acceptable under any circumstances. And yeah, it's unimaginable how much psychological damage that has caused in people. I agree. And uh, I'm going to move on to something, but I'm going to say before we close this chapter, I, about the, you know, different stances, the lucky part about my upbringing is that I believe I have attended services at over 40 different types of churches. Wow. Mostly Christian, of mm-hmm. Buddhist. I've been to Buddhist temple. I've been to a synagogue. I've been to a Catholic church. Um, maybe actually, you know, must be over 50. So the good news is that I bounced around a lot. So I learned a lot as a kid about different people's stances. And when I was in my 20s, I tried going to church again a few times um, for a little while uh, to see if I could fit in there. Um, this is before the Trump era, which we'll might get into. Um, and yeah. I... <laughs> I remember that this church actually I felt was like, wow, like you guys are really kind of getting some of this psychology stuff because they actually said like, obviously there may be other reasons to have a divorce besides infidelity. Right. And Mm -hmm. they were encouraging people to get counseling outside of the church when I was like, wow. Okay. And in the church, I mean, both right. Biblical counseling and professional for their couple, for their marriage. But if you couldn't, you know, that the the church wasn't going to disown you for having a divorce, but the same church would not let you be a member if you were gay and would mm-hmm. get on you about that. And so I kind of took, I kind of took license and I talked to the pastors and I said, you're cherry picking right here in the Bible. It says, Jesus, God hates divorce. And there's no excuse except for infidelity. And you're totally fine with these people who didn't have infidelity, just couldn't get along, had a divorce. And now they're both giving you 15% of their income or whatever. Right. Yep. But the gay people you want out. Why? That's cultural. That's cultural. Mm-hmm. There's like two gay people in this whole church and you're like giving them shit and they can't be a member. I said, that, that is not, that is cherry picking the Bible if I've ever heard it, which I won't even get into the gay thing, but there's like whole books written <laughs> on the fact that that's not even mentioned. Actually, the actual homosexual relationships are actually not even fully mentioned in the context of they are today. Sexuality is, has completely evolved over the last 2000 years and it's a whole nother bag of worms. Thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, that, no, that's a great point. Very, very glaring uh, inconsistency within within the church, and and as you say, like every every church is different. So, like as we're we're making all these broad statements, and of course they're going to apply to some of the more conservative churches, not apply to the more liberal churches, and uh, you know, so you just kind of have to roll with that because there's there's a great spectrum of, of there's forty forty seven thousand different protestant denominations mm-hmm. so yeah. you're right we're some of you are going to be offended because we're saying you're not conservative enough and some of you are going to be offended because we're not giving credit to the liberal churches so we're sorry this is just our experiences yeah we understand we can't broadly apply it so you're right about that and religious trauma i mean here's the deal if you've had religious trauma there are spiritual people that will help you there are churches that will even help you there is there is therapy with a more boundaried relationship and a more um, professional approach that will help you deal with that. Um, a lot of people who are spiritual maybe feel alienated around holidays of organized religion. You know, there's there's mm-hmm. th- traditional therapy can help you with this, um, but there's a there's a lot to say around that. There, but if you've been harmed 
with religious trauma, please don't stay silent. Get help. There are a lot of people out there that have been harmed also. There are whole support groups on the internet about it, um, whether whether it be Christianity or another religion. There's plenty of other religions who have this support group as well. Just in the United States, it's currently the dominant religion. Um, so that's what we're going to get more of. Um, thoughts on that? Uh, yeah. A- amen. I agree. interesting you're talking about um kind of uh, like religious therapy versus like regular therapy uh, you know that's i feel like that's a relatively new concept to me in that uh i was raised in the church again and, and like for me that was always just like the assumption when if if someone said you need therapy or you should see a counselor about this that was what they meant was you should see a christian counselor you know to to get your marriage back on track or to figure out, you know, like your, um, your sexual preference or, you know, things like that, because you're going to get a different answer if you go to a, a Christian counselor versus a, a secular counselor. Do, well, you, gonna, do you interact with Christian counselors in, in your practice? I have, a, I have a really bad track record of interacting with Christian counselors, but let's just go oh. with secular counselors here. Secular yeah. counselors are not supposed to give you an answer. That's the mm-hmm. difference. Right. Secular counselors are supposed to help you find the answer which is relevant to you in your current development and your cultural context. So if your context is Muslim or if your context is Christian, we're not going to divert you outside of that at all. Mm -hmm. But we are going to help you clinically with your symptoms, with the feelings you've got, with the depression. We're going to work through many different things to try to help you feel better, not only symptom-wise, but but like all the life domains, right? Mm-hmm. bio, psycho, social, spiritual, sexual. We're going to talk about those things. We're going to work on exercises. We're going to give you education. Some of None of that involves Bible verses, okay? Right, right. We'll also say, hey, if you've been damaged in this church, you might, have you thought about going to a church that's got more, you know, something else? We won't say what church, but we'll say, have you ever thought about that? You know, or whatever. We're gonna. We're not gonna lead you out of your cultural context. We want to. We want to affirm that. There is plenty of secular counselors that are Christian. I know mm-hmm. many of them um, that are secular, but I would call them more progressive Christian uh, because they are not so dogmatic in the Old Testament kind of way. Um, they're much sure. more love-based, much more Jesus-based. Um, and so uh, I have a bad track record of, quote-unquote, Christian counselors. I have had horrible experiences with anyone who is, uh, not anyone, 90% of them um, that I've met. And that mm-hmm. is because mostly patients have come to me and told me horror stories about a Christian council they went to. I remember, you know, my own brother going to a Christian counselor who told him he was bipolar when he was like 16. That was very helpful um, when mm. this person didn't even have a, a license. I mean, I've got, I've got, that's my own personal stuff, right? But I, I've never really had a good experience with it because I find that if you are solely pursuing Christian counseling, you you end up being an apologist for Christianity. So mm-hmm. when somebody's having a hard time, 
you need to, it's like not, you're sort of being with them, but you're also really trying to defend Christianity so they don't leave the church because of their hard time. Because a lot of times, hard times get you to question everything. Yeah. Right. Instead of letting the person be and being with them in their experience, sort of like the spiritual guidance mentors, like uh, the Franciscans and the, and the, and the, uh, I think the, the sisters, the Dominican sisters have like these spiritual guidance people that just kind of like listen to you and they just kind of, they don't really mm-hmm. tell you what to do, but they listen to you like from a godly way. That's different. The Christian quote unquote counselors I have are usually have been preachy, they're pushy, they're opinionated. And in my opinion, they're not too intelligent because they have not intelligent and book smart, but they haven't done their own work. They yeah, believe that they believe intelligent. That, right. They believe that doing inner work is getting closer to God. And mm-hmm. I would say that you can do inner work and get closer to a God, but you also have to look at your own shadow and the problems you're doing. And if you, if your agenda is to keep people in the faith, you're not fully listening to them. Um, mm-hmm. So we get lots of people at our counseling clinic who have been to quote unquote Christian counselors. But again, as I said, there are plenty of secular organizations where the people who are the therapists who aren't going to tell you to do one thing or another are Christian plenty. And I Muslim counselors, I, Literally, I know a Muslim counselor right now who counsels Christians, never will ever dissuade them from being Christian mm-hmm. because that's their context and vice versa. So yeah, yeah. sorry I just hopped on that. It was apparently a hot button issue. <laughs> no, no, that's great. I was I was I was somewhat curious about it because you know, I'm sure you have your experience um interacting with your colleagues, uh with who and I'm sure like you know, with counseling in general, right? It must it must be kind of a you know, it's not an exact science, right? Because you're dealing with human emotions here. So everyone has a different method and philosophy of how they deal with it to some extent, right? It's an art and a science. So it's an mm-hmm. art because if I only have the science and I just drill people through the facts about here's the coping skills, here's what the brain does, here's what emotions are, here's the lifespan information, that's not going to make them change. That's just information. Mm-hmm. And that's me talking yeah. at them. I have to help them figure out how their lived experience can help with maybe some, I'll, I'll give them some educational materials, but always stuff that's peer reviewed and research-based as to work. Right. But they mm-hmm. have to figure out, does that work for me? Does that not work for me? And then how do I apply that or go through an experience together? But during the experience, I don't take on a power stance. If mm-hmm. I'm doing EMDR therapy with somebody leading them through the worst traumas of their life to try to reduce their subjective units of distress from a 10 to a two, I don't take on a power role and say, look at, I've got a deep insight into your soul. I'm connected with the spirits right now and I'm pulling something out of you. That, that unfortunately is what some Christians do in these, in these prayer rooms. I'm connected to the father right now and I'm, I'm pulling mm-hmm. the godlessness out of you. I'm pulling the sin out of you. I'm pulling the trauma out of you. I'm not taking any stance like that. I'm a guy who got trained in this. You could get trained in this too. You just need some schooling and I'm going to help you get better because I care about you. I want you to get better. It's my job. My job is to get you out of therapy. The job of the Christian counselor is not to get you out of Christian counseling, it's to keep you in the church and thus church. being a dutiful mm-hmm. member. And hopefully you'll pay your dues and we can keep our building. I mean, there that is that is what's going on, mm-hmm. uh, in, in my opinion, in some stances. Not to say that everyone's got that agenda, but it's difficult when churches are, you know, you can read all over, which we'll get to later, <laughs> what ch- churches are sending out memos every day. How do we keep the youth in church? It's... I can tell you it's not fireworks and rock bands. Mm-hmm. It's these, these people want an experience, which we'll get into that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I certainly, I can only imagine that uh, I'm sure lots of experiences of 
uh, religious counseling has only compounded and doubled down on people's religious trauma, which is very unfortunate. Unfortunately, in my opinion, it's driven people away from the church. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, versus yeah. allowing them to kind of go through it. So we talked a little bit about our religious trauma. We're going to get into healthy spirituality, which is like the positive side of the of the cookie sandwich. But I think we're about ready to deep dive into deconstructionism. Are you all right with that? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. I know you love this part. So I'm going to make, I'm going to go out on a limb here with some, with some statements um, before we dive in. So here's kind of what I mean by this. There is a lot of people that have written history of humans on earth that don't happen to do with the Bible. Anthropologists, people that have studied tribes, people that have studied different cultures, people that have studied different religions. Um, we know that humans are meaning-making creatures. That's in the psychological research, that's in the anthropology, that's in the sociology research. And people want to know that there's a purpose for what they're doing here on earth. Most people, like that is what people say. What is the mm-hmm. point, right? What is the point? Uh, early humans. Why am I here? Why am I here? What, what are we doing? Early humans, um, let's say, you know, they're hunter-gatherer society or agrarian society. We know that they had, they killed animals for nourishment, Right. And they had rituals for these animals. Not all tribes, but most tribes we've found. There's so many examples, and I'm I'm citing Joseph Campbell's work, who studied Mm -hmm. mythology and anthropology for years. Um, They had uh, rituals for the animals they killed, often ceremonies, thanking the animals um, for the nourishment, for the clothing um, that the fur brought from the from the teeth that they could use as weapons. And we know that they a lot of these tribes seem to have ideas that the animal spirit went somewhere. Or maybe it was guiding them or helping them. And just like that, in early burial sites, we now know that certain humans were given these amazing burials and they were buried with artifacts and they were buried in this way. And a lot of myth and a lot of this comes to the fact that uh, early cultures, not Christian, every culture that we could pretty much find on earth, completely independent of each other, all over the globe, believe that there was some sort of different world than the material world whether it was they used to believe it was up in the sky right up mm-hmm. in the sky above the above the clouds was where gods were right yep. or on the mountain was where gods were um and we know that so so a lot of that is we call that mythology right and mythology is that you know what are these beliefs a myth is a traditional story concerning the early history of a people, right? Explaining some natural or social phenomenon and typically involving supernatural beings or events. We have the ancient Celtic myths, right? In the Christian story, we have these two people in a garden by themselves. That's apparently amazing. And they run Mm -hmm. into the snake and the snake tempts them with an apple uh, or whatever it was. It's depicted as an apple in Christian cartoons. It was Mm -hmm. some sort of fruit and it was amazing. And he tricked the woman, of course, into eating it. And then she got her husband to eat it. Then she blamed the snake. Well, there are multiple other stories. And this is in Joseph Campbell's book that he studied tribes all over the world, never connected, never seen a Christian in their life that Mm -hmm. have a blame it on the snake story where God came down, made this perfect world. Something happened. 
Unfortunately, a snake tempted somebody. They ate something. They saw something. They grabbed the wrong rock. All of a sudden, God's mad at them. Now you live in a fallen world. Blame it on the snake. Mm -hmm. These stories are multitudinous. Um, Mythology is a collection of myths, especially involving a particular religious or cultural tradition, like a book discussing Jewish or Christian mythologies. Um, You know, folklore. Um, there are myths in modern day, for instance, the myth of Abraham Lincoln. So if you, Mm -hmm. if you look at some of the Abraham Lincoln scholars, there's all this shit that was made up that he never said. A lot of it was made up in the 1880s up to about the 1912, where they were putting words in his mouth, kind of trying to make him into this supernatural tough dude when Mm -hmm. he had like some weird body disorder. He had like a weird uh, high pitched voice. He kind of you know, yeah. made a lot of mistakes, but we were mythologizing him to make him larger than life. Right. Um, and so in that, you know, humans seek something larger than life to help us feel meaning. And a lot of times that is a God or gods or spirits or something to guide us because we are vulnerable. And especially ancient people were vulnerable by animals and the weather, and they didn't understand droughts. So we didn't understand the weather patterns like we do now. Now uh, we are in obsessed with luxury and shelter and comfort, right? It's a different, different threats are, are coming our way. Thoughts on uh, mythology and why we're going that way. Wow. So much, so much there, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's the, yeah, the idea of what is the meaning of life? You know, that's, that's something I think about all the time because like, that's, that's something that Christianity preaches of like, we, we have the answer to this this cosmic question that everyone's asking, and they'll, they'll tell you that like outside in the world you'll you'll seek satisfaction, you'll seek meaning in money and career and relationships and drug and drugs and sex and whatever, but nothing truly satisfies. The only thing that truly satisfies is Jesus, you know, or you know, a different religion might might say like our particular God is is the true meaning. It's the true satisfaction you know that that was something i struggled with when when i was a christian was i felt like i'm pursuing jesus i'm reading the bible i'm serving i'm working at a church i'm doing all these things but i i still feel this this inner emptiness like is there something wrong with me am i doing it wrong and you know, but for me personally i i've concluded that just you know that that sense of arbitrariness that sense of meaninglessness is just a part of the human condition and i i would say that religion is just one more uh, antidote that that we've invented to try to, uh, you know, create some kind of meaning to go back to the the mythology that you're talking about. Like we we need so- something to commit to. We need like a story. We need like a higher purpose. We need something greater than ourselves to say that you know my life is is more meaningful than just you know my own existence and eighty ninety years on this rock. I agree with that. I think that, you know, we do want something to connect us to something greater. And it's Mm -hmm. funny when you say that the Christians were like, oh, but just, you know, it's just Jesus, just bring Jesus in. It's like, Mm -hmm. that is an externalization of a person or a God. That is a weird way of saying it, where I would say the spirituality is have a practice where you feel connected to something greater than yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. And AA, which is Alcoholics Anonymous used to say, you know, the first step is acknowledging a higher power. Because a lot of people that have addictions, were they're self-obsessed. Mm-hmm. Everything, everything that goes wrong, they're so upset about. They have this whole narrative in their mind about why me? Why does my life have to be bad? And because my life is bad, I'm going to drink, right? And I'm mm-hmm. going to destroy myself further. 
where if you have a higher power, if you realize that you're just a guy on the street, you know, with an alcohol problem, you can open up to greater possibility. But in the same way, you know, humans, we need meaning. We need to make sense of things. We're, we're meaning-making creatures. We want to know the answer. But the problem is, what is the difference between a religion and a cult? There's blogs on this. There's books on this. Cults mm-hmm. are attractive because they promote an illusion of comfort, right? We have the answers. Come to our nice coffee shop church, right? Cults satisfy the human desire for absolute answers, okay? Mm-hmm. And they love bomb you. The first time you go to a church, you know, hey, are you new? Come get the free gift. Mm-hmm. There's a free gift in donuts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they eventually want you to sign up that they are the right ones and the other ones are the wrong ones. Um, it's us versus them right? There's the people out there, the people in the world pursuing all these, these hedonists pursuing all these bad things. They're the bad people. We're the good people, right? We're not doing that. Although I would say everyone is pursuing some sort of pleasure or comfort. Yeah. Um, people don't know they're in a cult. Uh, you know, they, they, they believe that this is the truth and I found the truth. And the one thing is that cults tell you they have a special, they have the special version of the truth. And I know that a lot of the liberal Christian churches, like the Episcopals, don't say they have the one truth, right? The interfaith (laughs) dialogue. But a lot of the Baptist churches say, oh, we have the one truth. And the Catholics are going to hell, and the Methodists are going to hell, and the Presbyterians, and they're all blinded by Satan. And I'm like, listen, yo, 47,000 denominations, I'm sorry, none of y'all got the real (laughs) truth. Especially you people in rural Michigan where I grew up. Nah, no. Yeah. Who've only read the Bible in English and barely speak English. You know, and I mean that because they're English native speakers, but you know what I mean by that. <laughs> the tri- tribalism, us versus them mentality is is a huge thing with with religion for sure. That that and that's something that I would I would argue the Bible kind of like is talking out on both sides of its mouth about because that's something that I it really bothered me within Christianity was like I feel like there's there's one like more open minded, more like universal positive way to interpret. Christianity in the in the sense of God loves everyone. There's like the verse in Galatians about there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. Like it's it's all gonna wash out in the end. Everyone has equal, beautiful human value because everyone's a child of God. At the same time, you know, the the Bible has so much of a us versus them narrative, especially the Old Testament. It's you know, the Israelites are the people of God. It's this, it's very important that you're monotheistic, that you only worship Yahweh, have no other gods before me all the other tribes who are doing essentially the same thing by like, you know, trying to acquire land and farming and making sacrifices to their deity, but they just happen to have chosen the wrong one. They're doing it wrong, but your tribe is right. And of course, you know, it's very convenient that the ones writing the book happen to be the ones who like have the correct God and are creating this self mythology. Right. Oh, oh, and that's fun. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. that brings us into which we're skipping around a little bit, but kind of in the modern Christians entitlement in America yeah. that they were somehow born into the right place at the right time with the right, with the right religion. So they know they're doing the right thing and everyone else is wrong. But really, I think that just reeks of um, what, you know, what we call American exceptionalism, where we're, mm-hmm. we're, we are, every country wants to purport that it's the best. Christian nationalism, Christian nationalism, but I mean, like, and you know, America does awesome stuff. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. but it also, it's a huge place. It also does not awesome stuff, you know, and there's a lot, a lot of sordid history (laughs) involved and a lot of problems and a lot of negative things going on, right? It's, it's both. And, 
And so the hard part is I go like, I'm like, yo, that's just the culture influence in Christianity because in other mm-hmm. countries, they don't, they don't think that, you know, as and in certain other countries, they don't think that they're the best and they have the best answers. You know, this is, this is a very American idea, but it's also a very cult idea mm-hmm. that we have the right answer. Those poor people out there, they're just, it, it dehumanizes them. So I'm going to get mm-hmm. into why that's a problem. Uh, in a second, because I want to talk about this. So basically what I'm gonna, kind of trying to say is God or gods are an idea of where mm-hmm. do we come from? Where did all this matter come from? Where did the universe come from? It's an attempt to at explanation. And while there are truths in the Bible, like you said, there are good things in the Bible, like love and all of that. And, and in every religious text, mm-hmm. um, the issue is that the Bible is not like some like rule book that's just got like a bunch of, you know, science stuff and, 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 and rubrics for what we're supposed to do. It's a stories, metaphors, poems, mm-hmm. people's weird visions, uh, chronicles of humans, failings and follies. It's also two different books. The old Testament focuses on the tribes and kind of the history of part of Israel, which a lot of which can be historically traced. And the new Testament focuses on the four gospels, which in fact is way more than four, which right, we'll get right. into. Four and canonized then, gospels. Yeah. Right. And then Paul and Peter writing a bunch of books and most of which cannot be historically verified. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that. Uh, you know, I always remember this, like everyone loves the Greek and Roman hith- myths. If you were in uh, school and we got, we learned about all the Greek and Roman gods. And I thought that was so yeah. fun because we'd like learn about like, well, what is the God Dionysus? He's teaching us about like excess and how you shouldn't do too much of that. He like punishes you if you drink too much wine and you know, this sort of thing, but you can like call upon Dionysus if you're having a bummer of a day and get Dionysus to help you. And so I'm not saying that you know, but like in sixth grade, when I was learning that, no one was like taking those ideas literally like, hey, I'm praying to Zeus. You're praying to Mars. He's praying to Bacchus or Dionysus. Like we didn't take this literally. We're just like, oh, that's so funny. We can like learn from these Greek gods and like how the culture was at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like that, the Bible, which is the long, you know, the Christian church is the longest running book club of all time, um, mm-hmm. you know, is we're not saying parts aren't true, but we're saying that this is a complex document. And it's and it has way t- so many different things in it from different cultures and different time periods that if you read it literally in English in a dumbed down translation, you are not getting the complexity, the misunderstandings, the contradictions, the hermeneutics, and it's devoid of its historical context for who it was meant. And then you mm-hmm. apply it to yourself; it can get really sticky. Thoughts? Yeah, but. Uh, agree with that, and I, I mean, I would say just to stick up with for the Bible a little bit. I think I'd say it's it's worth it. It's worth reading. You know, I think there was a part of me um, when I was first deconstructing, deconverting, that was more of kind of the angry atheist, like it, it's all bullshit. Like let's throw this out. Like it's not it's not worth keeping around because there's so much stuff in here that's tribalistic, that's violent, that's sexist, homophobic, whatever. You know, of course, all of that problematic stuff very much is there. But yeah, the the mythology, the the power of story, poetry, the um, metaphorical meaning that you can find within these stories, you know, I, I think is is culturally relevant and is beautiful, and is you know obviously very emotionally resonant for people um, to this day. I can agree with you on that. Yeah, and that brings us to the split of okay. how this is utilized. And the difference between a cult and a spiritual practice.
because I also agree with you. I think the book is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I think it's super interesting. I've read the entire book and I've read a lot of books talking about it. And I find it very interesting. There's lots of things you can learn from it, right? There's mm-hmm. actually a whole book uh, by Rob Bell, who is, of course, a controversial preacher, called What is the Bible? And how the story of myths and stories and all this and poems and mm-hmm. interpretations of God can change your life, right? Yeah. That's different because that's a practice. So I'm going to jump into this part, um, which is about the idea of how are we using the Bible? It is a complex document. So are we using it for a, a, a equating it as a literal thing that we just sort of cherry pick literal verses out of here and we believe all of it's literal and then we sort of apply that to ourselves in some sort of odd fashion? Mm-hmm. Um, that is where I sort of have a pet peeve. Um, my pet peeve yeah. is that there's 47,000 distinct Protestant denominations a lot of them have highly different interpretations of what they believe God is or gods are and mm-hmm. what is okay and what's not okay. And that is what bothers me. And that not that anyone practices it. If they want to practice it and you want to apply the Bible to your life, I give you high fives if you're actually reading the thing and working on it. But when you start crossing the line into, you need this, okay, mm-hmm. Jeff, mm-hmm. you need this or else you're going to go, you're going to be in bad pain and and you need this other people and and we need to start bringing this into our into uh you know the politics of our entire country which is not fully christian and we need to start applying these rules to everybody from the book specifically i start to take a take a take pause with that because i don't think that's a practice i think that is utilizing the bible and a religion and a spiritual practice and and co-opting it for power and that is exactly, um, I think, why we have these debates, because that is where people start having control. And and so I want to kind of go into a little bit of that to deconstruct, if you're okay with yeah, that. Thoughts. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> when you were talking, it reminded me of this passage. I just looked it up in 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial or advantageous. Um, you know, this is not, not necessarily talking about the Bible here, but I think it can apply here in the idea of like, if it, the way it works for some people does not necessarily work for other people. And as you're talking about, if, you know, if, if you can find meaning and purpose throughout these stories that that's wonderful, but yeah, it becomes problematic when it becomes prescriptive and you try to, um, tell other people how they can or can't live their lives based on your particular interpretation of the scriptures. And here's a fun thing. So just as a psychological example, everyone on this podcast probably has a friend. The friend calls you and says, hey, I'm having trouble with such and such a relationship or such and such with this. And you say, well, well, why don't you do this? Why You should do this. You should do this. Mm-hmm. I almost guarantee you, unless this friend is desperate and has no other friends and is completely lonely, they're going to say, no, I don't want to do that. Or, um, I don't No, I'm not sure if I'm ready to talk about that. I I don't, I wasn't calling for answers. I was calling for you to listen to me. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, a child comes to the parent and they say, Hey, I'm having trouble with this and that. Would you help me with X? That means okay. Mm-hmm. But if the child just comes and says, I'm having this problem. And you say, you know, um, well, you need to do this, that, and the other, the child's probably going to reject that, right? Mm-hmm. And just like that, that is where I start getting a little twisted. So we're going to go into some of my pet peeves. Maybe living in another country Under another name But you're going to have to serve somebody 
Yes, you are. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yeah, let's, Ready for let's this? get into it. Let's, let's go, it. pet peeves. Ending with hell. Well, let's start with this. Um, big pet peeve of mine, number one. A lot of, uh, uh, almost every church I've ever been to, minus two, who actually did take this into context, Christian churches, do not, or, or sorry, they cherry pick the cultures. So th- even these two churches I went to, they cherry picked what cultural references they were willing to bring into it. Okay. Mm-hmm. A lot of modern Christians have no idea the original historical context of the Bible, who wrote it, why they wrote it, when they wrote it, for who, and who assembled it, who canonized it, and that there are books left out. And that there are the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas being pretty much almost an entirely Buddhist tome, if you've read it. Um, I have, yeah. Mm -hmm. And what language was it originally written in? And how many translations has it gone through? And what is the problem with the King James translation versus a literal concordant translation of the Greek or the Hebrew? My qualm with the church is that most churches I've been to have never even mentioned this and have not even Mm -hmm. mentioned that this is a lot of this was coming from a Jewish culture, right? And and a, and a historical period of time. So, and then they apply it as if it's ready-made for today's problems in a very ham-handed, ham-fisted way. That's mm-hmm. my pet peeve. Jeff, thoughts? It, it's it's interesting. I, I, I guess, like, of course, every church is different and some churches are going to be more kind of... Um, uh, lecturely educational, you know, intellectual with the way they dive into culture and language and translation. You know, I've certainly been to a lot of churches where they have a big emphasis on the the issues of translation. And it's like, let's go back to the Greek, the Greek word for this. Like, what does it literally mean within this context? And I've been to churches that are much more simplified. So yeah, I, I understand that, that criticism. And, um, you know, I guess that that's kind of a debate within the church too. Like the word is like seeker sensitive of like, how much do we need to dumb down the text to make it like accessible for people who've never opened a Bible before and how much, you know, we, we want to give people an education and teach them something and give them kind of an aspirational, like feel good message they can take home with them and apply to their week somehow. So I, I totally get the the necessity of that and, and why churches do that. Also, in terms of the the cherry picking thing, I guess that that's something that I've changed my thinking on in terms of like I was talking before about the ideas of mythology and stories can be metaphorically true. I I would say now that um, I used to believe cherry picking was was like the worst thing ever when I was a more conservative Christian, you know? Right, like, right. Like it's not you can't take that verse out of context. That's not what Paul was talking about in this particular case. Now I'd say like cherry picking is great. Like just take take a message, take a parable of Jesus, take an Old Testament story. Like, okay, for example, the, you know, the story of David and Goliath, you know, everyone's familiar with that story. It's it's very iconic, even if you've never read the Bible in your life. And people use that story and they'll say, like, I'm going to face the giants in my life and I'm going to, like, ask my boss for a promotion this week or something like that. You know, it's people, no one is taking the story literally and being like, the, the moral of the story is you solve your problems by throwing rocks at people's heads, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a metaphor, it's a metaphorically true powerful thing of like you can be creative and face an overcoming an overmounted obstacle overcome your 
insurmountable obstacles. And I love that. And I think mm-hmm. that if people, if people in all of these churches that I've been to read the Bible that way and applied it that way, I'm in favor mm-hmm. of that. I'm in yeah. favor of that. The hard part, I guess the hard part, my pet peeve is in when they, th- this is a fun one. So a lot of churches have been getting into this, like the Greek word was actually this, like to sound, you know, make yeah, it more yeah, interesting, cool. mm-hmm. but they still ignore the context of the culture. I've only yeah. heard very few people, uh, Rob Bell being one of them, actually went back and studied what was going on with that phrase, what was going on with that tribe at the time, what was going on with the, with the culture of the Roman times, and saying, oh, and that makes sense because they're doing this and that, and not just looking at the words. So I, I appreciate mm-hmm. that. I, I guess, again, it comes down to how you're utilizing it. If I'm thinking about David and Goliath, or I'm thinking about the Good Samaritan, right? I want to be a Good Samaritan and help somebody yeah. out and not just ignore them lying on a, on the subway floor, so to speak. Sorry, that's hitting home this week with the news. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that is a positive message for people. It's the issue is that I have is that the Christian church, the evangelicals in particular believe that they Mm -hmm. have the one truth, the one true God, and everyone else is pretty much a heretic or a lost soul. That irks me because here's why many reasons. And we're going to get into it for the rest of the podcast. The religion itself, the book, the, the, the teachings, the original teachings, even when it was first developing right after Christ's death, don't even say that. Mm-hmm. The, the very book that you're saying has that dogmatic approach that you turn and burn or, and you're lost if you don't repent. Literally, it, it's, it's a dumbed-down, fundamentalist, yeah. uh, not well-thought-out, argument. It's a fear tactic. It's a superiority uh, uh, thing. It is a way to make you feel special. It is a way to work with your death anxiety. It is a way for you to feel connected because for whatever, or feel superior to others or feel bad for others. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's a way for you to belong to your tribe. It's many, many things, but it is not the one truth. I'm not saying I know the one truth, but <laughs> yeah. I, I am sure that they are not correct. It is coming from a sky god. It is coming from really old rituals of sacrifice. It is not what they're saying it is, Jeff. Yeah, it's it's an oversimplification, of course. And I, th- I think in a lot of ways, it just comes from just this um, sense of needing to get the numbers up, you know, like to preaching heaven and hell, just trying to simplify it as much as possible, just get people to like realize the stakes are high and try to just sum up all of this complex and vague and open to interpretation theology and writings and just say, okay, this is, this is what it is. You need to either, you need to pray this prayer. And if you don't, before you die, this is where you're going. Um, you know, we talk about this a lot with like the way that, um, kids are taught about hell, um, and how that's, you know, that, causes all kinds of trauma for people, which I know we, we can get into more for sure. But I think, you know, it's, uh, that that's something I'm always wanting to challenge the church on and want like, I've, I've talked about this a bunch on the podcast and like, Jeremy is a universalist. He believes everyone's going to heaven eventually, um, which is an interesting view that, you know, not, not a lot of evangelicals would share. Um, but that, I mean, that's something that, I always want to challenge people on it. Like, is Jesus, is your Christian life enough in this life? Like with, could you, could you convince people that with whatever your spiritual religious practices, would it make your life better today rather than having to just like go to 
the afterlife, having to you know sell people fire insurance or something like that. And yeah, I think I think for a lot of Christians, for for myself certainly, especially when I was younger, it was it was not about uh, you know pleasure in this life. It was not about um, finding meaning as much as it was just like, wow, that hell seems like a scary place, and I want to avoid going there at all costs. So I better make sure I pray the prayer. Since you went into hell, I'm going to skip over a little bit of the Dominion theology and Inquisition. Okay. We're going to come back to that though, because <laughs> that's a, that's no, no, no. Don't be sorry. I think that's actually this is the this is the part about the conversation that comes into it. Yeah. Um. So I'm going to just go into this for a minute. Um. Here's the here's an odd thing about hell, and there's many many articles on this. Tentmaker.org has a bunch of articles on this. There's whole books on this. Mm-hmm. Um, that that essentially say when Constantine made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire, the power of love for all was re- was replaced with military and political power. The church became a tyrant. It became in bed with politics. Those church leaders who embraced universalism, which was most of them at the time, if not mm-hmm. all of them, which in the first 300 years after Christ, were eliminated. The pagan concept of hell of eternal damnation was injected. Um, that's possibly, this person says they believe that's a lot of the reason why the Western world went somewhat into the Dark Ages. The teaching of hell perverted those, uh, the minds of those um, leading the church. Um, basically, uh, this is Lord Byron. I cannot help thinking the menace of hell makes as many devils as the severe penal codes of inhuman humanity makes villains. Uh, Thomas Paine said, belief in a cruel God makes a cruel man. Epicurus said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he able and willing? Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh the evil? Is he either able nor willing? Then why call him God? Mm -hmm. Um, Just going to jump in a little bit further. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, right? Yeah. And, And that's kind of fun while you're alive, right? But Christian preachers famously, and a lot of the mainstream ones like Joe Olstein won't even talk about this, right? The ones on mm-hmm. TV with the big mega jets and the mega stadiums, they won't even talk about this almost ever. Yeah. Um, they believe that after people die, that you either go one of two places or three places if you're Catholic, mm-hmm. heaven to be with God forever and wear white clothing and sing songs or go to hell and where Jesus or uh, Satan, uh, Jesus will give Satan uh, power to burn you forever, uh, which is uh, really kind of hearkening towards that, uh, I can't remember, the, uh, Dante's Inferno, I believe is a lot where that also was influenced by. Mm-hmm. Um, and they believe that essentially, uh, that is what's going on. And that has scared people for hundreds of years. And I would say that has converted more children to Christianity and scared the shit out of them mm-hmm. than almost any doctrine. And here's the fun part. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna just take a, uh, dismissive, uh, deconstructionist, uh, look and say, wow, you're missing the metaphor. I would actually like to go in for a minute and talk about hell in the context of when it was written and who wrote it and why they said it 
which is a very short, by the way, there's whole books on this. Mm -hmm. I would like to use the own religion's text against itself. Are you open to that? Sure. Let's, let's dive into the pit of hell. Okay. So fun time, fun times is that, uh, in, in general, hell in the, in the, in the current English versions of the Bible are coming from four different words from several different languages. The first word is Sheol. Sheol uh, is is called hell in the King James Version 31 times, also grave 31 times, and pit three times. Uh, Other translations are similar. So essentially, Sheol was the Hebrew place of the dead. It was the unseen, the unperceivable. In Scripture, Sheol and Hades uh, never had the same meaning, which Christianity or pagan religions give to it. So for instance... Um, there's so much, I don't want to go too much into the books, but in Acts yeah. 2, 27 and 31, Peter uses the Greek word Hades in quoting Psalm 16, 10, where the word Hebrew shale occurs. Uh, thus God's spirit breathed Hades as a synonym for shale. In the Greek scriptures, Hades means, Hades means the unseen or unperceptible. Um, so essentially in this place, uh, so Peter says in the King James Version in Acts 2, 31, his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. So did Jesus go, so like that's talking about how Jesus went somewhere after yeah, he was killed the, on Friday and rose again on Sunday? of hell. Mm-hmm. Right. So did Jesus go to the Christian place of eternal torment to pay for people's sins? No. He went somewhere unseen, unperceptible. The, the book on this, where I'm getting a lot of this from, is, um, there's many books, but Hope Beyond Hell is one of the books uh, written by a Christian missionary who was very upset about this doctrine. Uh, he's got a whole website, hopebeyondhell.net, tentmaker.org. Rob Bell actually more criticizes it from a non-biblical point of view, so I wouldn't really recommend him for this. Yeah, um, his book Love Wins, right? I feel like that's a more cultural critique than it is a biblical critique. Um mm-hmm. So, uh, for instance, David Bentley Hart is a Yale scholar that's written mm-hmm. extensively on um, Christian universalism and hell. Uh, bitten by a camel, leaving God. Uh, bitten by a camel, leaving church, finding God by Kent Dobson. Um, and then there's other. There's if you really want to get into the study, which most people don't, Concordant.org is uh, has a bunch of free tools. Um, but basically, Concordant and Young's Literal Translation and Rotterham's Emphasized Bible. Um, just for fun, they actually translate it exactly like it was written. Whereas the King James Version, we know, inserted the word hell, mm-hmm. which we will get to, for four different words. Thoughts so far? Am I going too far off the rails? <laughs> there's there's so much. Hard to keep up. Uh, yeah, it, it, that, that's true. I mean, that's a huge problem with, um, you know, the To go back to the translation issue again, but both the translation in terms of the language, but also just the cultural understanding, you know, like with, with Sheol, as I understand it, that's this old Testament concept of just the place of the dead, where it's just, it's, it's not like eternal torture or eternal bliss. It's just, you know, nothingness, or it's this kind of gloomy, like cellar. I've heard people describe it as, or it's, you know, just like being in the ground in the grave. It's like, I don't know. Like no one knows. It's just the the emptiness of death. Um, versus you know, like the, uh, another New Testament idea is Gehenna, right? Which is like the literal garbage dump outside Jerusalem. 
that like Jesus often talked about in, in his teachings that we just translate to hell. And, you know, when I was younger, reading the Bible, reading the Gospels, I would just always think every time Jesus said hell, I would think, oh, yeah, he means like the eternal damnation version of hell that, you know, I was brought up with. I don't know. I mean, to just bring it back to the the practicality, I, I you know, I think hell is an underrated issue psychologically in terms of, you know, people are aware of hell trauma. I, I think most people are aware of just it's psychologically damaging to teach kids this, but I don't, I think people who are not growing up in the church are unaware of just how widespread, how mainstream of an idea this is, you know, it, it was weird for me, like, because I was brought up believing in hell and I thought about it all the time and it just, it was horrifying. You know, the thought of if I, you make one wrong move and you're tortured for eternity. And then what about some of my friends who I don't know if they're Christian or not? And am I supposed to be partying in heaven while they're being tortured for all eternity? And like, should I try to evangelize to people? But what if I screw it up and then I send them to hell? You know, it's this, you can just spiral out of control for sure. And just the, the ethical implications of it. Like if, if hell is real, why would anyone ever have children? Because if there's even a 1% chance that your kid is going to deconvert and not be a Christian anymore, you're damning them for eternity. You know, it, so it's this weird, it's this weird question of like, do, do people literally believe in the literal eternal torture that they're teaching? Um, you know, because people have made that criticism of if they really believe in hell, they'd be crying in the streets, you know, trying to save everyone. And people don't seem to have that level of urgency. Some people do. Some people become missionaries and sell all they have because they believe it for real. Most people, you know, claim, claim to believe it, but uh, just go about their lives. But meanwhile, are still traumatizing children, you know, by the thousands at summer camp. Totally. Yeah, I, I agree <laughs> completely. And I'm not going to go into the degree. I can't go into the detail of all the Bible verses that Jesus said, but every time Jesus talked about hell in the New mm -hmm. Testament, 11 times, he was actually saying the word Gehenna in Greek. Mm -hmm. Also, the word Hades was in the Bible, and that was also has a lot of context with the Greek place of the dead, right? Mm -hmm. Tartarus is a place where like apparently spirits were in jail or whatever. That's the that's only used a couple times in the New Testament. My point of this is with the Bible itself is that Sheol, totally different meaning Hebrew, Tartarus, totally different meaning Greek, Hades, totally different meaning Greek, and mm -hmm. Gehenna, an actual literal place in the Valley of Hinnom, a literal garbage dump, which apparently now is a nice beach uh, front a, area, a picnic area. Now. It's a grassy park. Yeah, I've been there. I went on an Israel-Palestine trip several oh, you years did? ago. And I've been, yeah, so I've been to Gehenna. Which so you've is, been to hell? I've been to hell. I've been to hell and back, baby. Yeah, <laughs> it's, everyone Everyone makes those jokes when they go there. Yeah, because it, it's just a beautiful park with picnic tables and people are just hanging out there. Yep. So the funny part about this is, is right there, we already see that, you know, in the King James Version, they translated, and, and that was the original English version, Mm -hmm. four completely different meaning words into something that served their purposes. And in my, my idea is that the purpose was to essentially co co coerce illiterate people throughout Europe who didn't have access to reading it themselves or were uneducated, which was most yeah. of the populace, right, right. fearing some sort of horrible afterlife, thus creating a, quote, hell on earth. 
Um, and basically it took on a giant religious meaning after about 1600, um, the mm-hmm. church of England brought that into it. Um, and essentially with that, the word hell actually was, uh, an old English word that meant to cover, uh, and they believe it had something to do with roofs, roofing. Um, hmm. so it's it just, it, it's a, it's a doctrine that makes almost zero sense. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't make sense. It's horrific. It contradicts the entire character of God. People have, all these apologists have said, well, it's your choice to reject it, and then you can't be with God, so that's like a type of hell. And there's all these different hell spectrums and annihilation and all this stuff. And I'm sorry, but if if you haven't studied the very book itself and the literal Greek translation, the literal Hebrew translation, and know that the English translation was converted and co-opted just like Rome co-opted Christianity, made the official religion. The Church of England took what they wanted to put in there, a lot of it from Dante's Inferno, we believe, made up a word, inserted it for a bunch of words that were never said, and utilized that context to not metaphorically scare people, because I do think you can create a, quote, hell on earth with your right. behaviors and your actions yeah. and the way you treat people. And, you know, or a hell sort of here in your own mind. Or in your own mind. From, you can create a, quote, hell, yeah. a terrible mm-hmm. place you can't escape from. But to say that if you have a child and your child makes a mistake and they say, I reject you, father or mother, and you say, well, that's it. For the rest of your life, I will never speak to you again. You're outcast to me. You're dead to me. That, to me is the metaphor because if there is a mm-hmm. one let's just say there's one god in the sky maybe it's the he- abrahamic god let's just say that for a second mm-hmm. if that god is so petty that he can't understand or they can't understand the complexities of human life and people and how they suffer and how they what they go through and that they have to then at the end of the age they have a lot of pleasure in throwing people over here or over here that's a psycho that mm-hmm. sounds man made to me and yeah. it sounds insane. It sounds like a control factor because you can make, you can scare the peasants into giving money to the church. The Catholic church famously has sold people statues of Mary, statues of Jesus yeah, uh, yeah. In, in order to get their relatives out of purgatory. So they indulgences, indulgences. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and I, I wonder how many Christians have really uh, adopted Christianity in, in America just because they're afraid of the story. Um, and, and then that leads again to how are you using it? Are you using religion as a practice to help you become a better person in your heart and how you treat other people and how you interact in the world? Or are you bludgeoning other people with your strange belief system that isn't even really, uh, verified thoughts? And is it, and is it a philosophy that's based on love or based on fear? You know, because if, if you're starting people out, with based on fear with the hope that they'll they'll learn about the love stuff later in life i I feel like you're setting yourself up for failure um with with that model yeah but i I love everything you said about the the logical contradiction of why it it just it doesn't make sense i've I've seen a lot of people make arguments um christian universalists and atheists alike basically just make the argument that it, it makes no logical sense you don't get to have both you can't say that god is good god loves everyone but God allows people to be tortured for eternity. And it took me a long time to get there and accept that because it was so baked into my own psyche. Like I just believe, yeah, hell is a reality. It's, it's unfortunate and it seems counterintuitive, but 
you have to believe it. You have to believe God is all loving and you have to believe he's grieved that people go to hell, but for whatever reason, he allows it. And it's, it's a very liberating thought when you realize you don't have to do those mental gymnastics anymore. And it doesn't even make sense if mm-hmm. we take the sacrifice metaphor of Christ. Yeah. Because Christ was dead for three days. Christ gave up his weekend to save you from his sins. I'm sorry, that doesn't equate to eternity of people <laughs> who, who fucked up in life and are being yeah. tortured forever. It doesn't even make sense in that context. And yeah, I won't well, even go the, in. The blood sacrifice atonement stuff is a whole, is a whole other can of That's words. another podcast. But we, yeah. could go, we could go back to the fact that many, many, many tribes and religions over time before Christianity had metaphorical sacrifices of a son or a daughter for various mm-hmm. reasons. And that we yeah. brought that into animals and this, that's a whole nother you, thing. Right. You, you brought up the sacrifice before, uh, before, and I, I went down a different rabbit trail, but that's something I wanted to mention because that, yeah, that's something that's, that's interesting to me uh, because af- after leaving Christianity, I've, I've become more interested in animal rights and vegetarian trying to be vegan. Um, I don't believe it's it's ethically right to eat animals unless it's, you know, like an emergency or something like that if you're on a desert island, <laughs> whatever. Um, and, you know, it's it's fascinating how, uh, you know, animal sacrifice is such a huge, important part of the biblical narrative. I was always, you know, I always felt somewhat uncomfortable with it, thought, like, this is weird. Like, why does God need the blood sacrifice? You read, like, the later Old Testament prophets, they even say, like, sacrifices you did not desire, um, there's a parable of Jesus where where the king says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So it's like, so why is God asking for these animal sacrifices when he doesn't even need them? So it, it's fascinating to think of, you know, one explanation is just that these these ancient tribes, they were killing animals for the meat, right? And because and, you were talking about this earlier there, they were thanking the gods for provision, for providing this sustenance that that they needed because they didn't have access. They didn't have a grocery store down the road like we do today where they can buy uh, carrots and bananas. So they, you know, they, they needed to kill the ox and they needed to justify it and it became this spiritual thing. So just all that to say, like, the intertwined nature of of eating meat but then justifying it by saying that it's it's for the gods, the gods desire blood for some reason. And then how that later gets mapped onto Jesus, which, which again, you know, like hell is another thing about like the New Testament story that doesn't make sense to me and that bothers me. Like, if God is all about love, why does he use bloodshed to solve his problems? Couldn't he find a nonviolent uh, solution to the problem of sin and death? Yeah, or like, of course, the Passover story where mm-hmm. you had to figure out, uh, you know, they put blood of the goat yeah. or something or the sheep yeah, on the door, the and door God, mm-hmm. God supposedly took an angel of death to kill all these egyptian babies right i mean exactly i I mean i'm sorry but that story was praised like when i was in bible school they're like like yeah god killed all the egyptian babies so that pharaoh would stop hardening his heart towards god and let the israelites go right i won't even get into how that plays today yeah the (laughs) the story of the exodus is so you know it's so important it's so integral to the story because the story of god's people you know constantly throughout the old testament saying i'm the god who brought you out of egypt and you know that's why I will always be faithful to you. And it's so fascinating because like this the story of the Exodus is about how slavery, of course, is a terrible thing. It's a bad thing that uh, the Israelites are enslaved by the Egyptians. But then just one book later, um, the Israelites are making laws about how they can keep slaves of their own and makes them force labor upon them. <laughs> it seems 
shockingly inconsistent. Like, how come it's bad when it happens to you, but it's okay for you to do it to others? Right. Again, why this book needs to be examined as a historical, interesting document and not Mm -hmm. a textbook for how to live. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, if it's a textbook, How to Live, I'm sure a bunch of guys would be really interested in the Song of Solomon and David, the king, who had, like, 900 wives. I mean, this, I mean, just, Mm -hmm. I'm being silly, but, like, you know, again, cherry-picking what we like. So, the culture, the cultural context, my, a a couple other pet peeves, because I think we're kind of getting into possibly going to the positive soon. But some pet peeves, you know, are that the Gnostic Gospels were left out. Why were they left out? Why are the Gospels so different? Um, Who assembled the Bible? Who canonized the text? Who said it was holy? Who gave them authority? Most people have no idea. Mm-hmm. People don't know what was left out. They haven't read the Gnostic Gospels. And even there, if you believe that this document is some literal thing from God, that just, to me, it unfortunately screams of your ignorance or what I would call is a safety of denial. I mm-hmm. need to keep my world small because it's scary out there. The news is scary economies are scary, war is scary, relationships are scary. But if I can kind of focus on this simplistic story and this version of this story, it helps me, right? It's, it's, it helps me feel absolute security because when you're a baby, when you're a little baby, we need that. We need to believe that we're the center of the universe and that our mother or father, whoever's holding us is always going to keep us safe. Right. And parents say this to kids. They lie all the time. They say, I'll always be there for you. No, you won't. You'll die eventually. And you're not going to be there for them, but they'll be grown by that point. Right. Mm -hmm. And and we do that. And I feel like, like you said, religion and in that way of using religion as a sort of like daddy or mommy needing to kind of hold us is because humans have problem. Humans have problems accepting that there is a gray level of thinking. And we're seeing this all over our culture. Mm-hmm. We're seeing black and white and when black and white thinking. And when people are stressed out or nervous, they move more into absolute. It's either this or it's that. It's either this or it's that. They can't think that it's both. And and mm-hmm. there's multitudinous and and there's nuance. There's nuance to politics. There's nuance to religion. There's nuance to spirituality. So I feel like that's some of what simplistic religion serves. Um, I also... Yeah. Want to throw, just kind of yeah, to say something on Comments, that, I, yeah. I would argue that the the Bible is a more mature text in that sense of mm-hmm. like, yeah, there's there's black and white like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt thou shalt not, you know, very very black and white just list of rules, but then um, New Testament it's it's much more nuanced and open to inter- interpretation. You know, Jesus says that you can sum up all of the law and the prophets and just love God and love your neighbor, right? And like, well, that'd be good. Let's, yeah, let's, just, why isn't that one on billboards? I don't see that on billboards. All their religions are the best. They worship themselves, yet they're totally obsessed. With risen zombies, celestial virgins, magic tricks. These unbelievable outfits, and they get terribly upset. When you question their sacred texts Written by a woman hating epileptics Their language is just served to confuse them Their confusion somehow makes them more sure 
They build fortunes, poisoning their offspring. Exactly, and it's, it's it's somewhat problematic because we don't know if God actually exists or not. But so just to say, like, what does it mean to love your neighbor? You know, that's not a black and white rule. That's completely open to interpretation and situational, and it depends on who the person is, what the situation is, what does love look like in that moment. I agree with you, and I, I again, I, it keeps coming back to the point of how are you utilizing it? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm gonna, I've got only a couple more pet peeves before moving to the positive. Sure. Yeah. So. Um, my pet peeve are, are you a person or an entity using the Bible or religion to have control of power over other people? So here's my examples. It's been done for thousands of years since Christianity was co-opted by Rome. That was the first one, right? Christianity was getting popular. Rome felt that they needed to like calm down because it could start a revolution. They thus said Christianity is the official religion. They started getting rid of the pagan religions, which were people of the woods, pagans, and they had their own little superstitions. Like the Celtic ones are very well studied, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. there was people all over Italy and um, what they called Gaul back then, but Germany and, and the Spanish area that had different religions. Um, and as you know, and this is where it goes wrong, and Christians don't love to think about this, just read about the Crusades. It was rescue mm-hmm. the holy land of Jerusalem from the infidels. The infidels. That's what they called Muslims and people that didn't believe in Christ. They would say that without any sort of real trial, it would be a kangaroo court, and they'd say, uh, you're in line with the devil and witchcraft, and we're going to burn you or kill you. That happened for hundreds of years all throughout Europe, and that actually was in line with a lot of the different colonial things that were going on at that time. Um, And that continues today in what is called dominion theology, which is Christians, some evangelicals idea that they believe that we need to, the Christians need to bring Jesus to everybody and convert them. And I would say that that is in line with colonialism, which is what Mm -hmm. was happening from about 1600s on is that Christians um, quote unquote, Christians and, and, and Protestants and Catholics, whatever, went around the world, quote unquote, you know, converting native peoples of those areas. To yeah. read more about that, you can read in the People's History of the United States, which has by Howard Zinn, which combi- compiles historical documents as well as actual journals and reports of those doing the colonizing, as well as people who were um, afflicted by the colonizers. It's horrific, violent, and exploitative, and a lot of it was done in the name of Christ. And a lot of it was right in line with Dominion theology, which continues to this day, and here's where it's it's continued, it's changed its name to Kingdom Now, that's some of the names for it, um, which has gotten basically the moral majority, okay, the Christian right, that same has roots, in all of this dominion theology, which you can trace back to colonialism, which you can trace back to the Inquisition and the burning of witches. By the way, most witches were herbalists, and they mm. happened to be women who did not believe and did not go to church and kind of had their own like natural remedies. A lot of them were considered not part of society, and they wanted to eradicate them. So they say they would uh, say, we saw a so-and-so kissing a demon, and they would have these mock trials and burn them. You can read about these books in the history of the occult, uh, the history of Christianity books. You can read about these. If the, if the book is written by a non-apologist, you can read what actually happened. Yeah. So that really bothers me because I can see that same seed stirring today 
in the way in our political debates that Christians believe that they need to legislate on school boards, city councils, Senate, Congress. Their version of morality is the right one. Thoughts? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I saw a tweet the other day that said, if you want to see Christians at their worst, give Christians power. I think that's uh, just very resonant and true to history, and it's true to the what we see in the church today with the, the most religious politicians, the most pro-Christian Jesus-y politicians tend to be the most uh, authoritarian, at least here in, in the United States, um, which is... Well, yeah, which is disturbing and, you know, is very, very antithetical to the teachings of Jesus, in my view. But somehow, you know, many Christians seem to find a way to reconcile it, which is sad. It's sad. Um, one of the heroes of, of that movement of let's go back to hell for a second was Jonathan mm-hmm. Edwards, born yeah. 1703, died March 22nd, 1758 in the United States, was a quote unquote revivalist. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he he's very influential, and I've heard many Christian preachers quote him as a wonderful man. You should read his sermons. Sinners uh, in the hands of an angry God, yeah. They are insane. He is an insane man. I will say that on air. That is my opinion. I believe as a, as a therapist, he was literally insane. He was driven by hate. Um, he People would commit suicide after going to his sermons. Uh, basically, he talked about the joy he would have in heaven dancing while people burned in hell. This is the sort of stuff that's taken over in the religion, and it's there. And I'm not saying that every Christian is responsible for that, but I do think if you are a Christian, you are responsible for understanding how your religion is affecting other people. I'm cool if you want to just have your little church and do your thing, and you want to mm-hmm. and you want to take your opinions into the workplace, take take your opinions into politics, but don't tell everybody that that's the only one way to do things. And here's the funny part: a lot of Christian belief systems, like the Ten Commandments, I think most people can get down with the Ten Commandments. I think that's you know obviously some very good. We have as a society laws that were based on Christian tenets, such as the Ten Commandments and other other things like that. But other other people that have never heard of the Ten Commandments have the same laws. Okay, <laughs> they do. Other yeah. cultures have same laws or even more strict laws. Okay, yeah, uh, laws based on a couple of. I mean, like don't don't steal and don't kill are the two right. ones, two ones main that we ones actually have actual laws for. Right, and yeah, ten commandments. It's it's a weird list because the first three are all specifically about monotheism and only worshiping God, and not making graven images. Right, <laughs> I remember that. I forgot about that part. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting criticism of the Ten Commandments. Is like that the first three seem to be like it's God's more concerned with His own praise and glory and ego than He is with like how we treat each other as humans, um, which are the you know the other seven. But yeah. No, Certainly, well, there's there's good stuff in there. There's good stuff in there, but again, yeah. God is a man. Again, mm-hmm. doesn't work for me. I'm sorry. Like, as we know, men are a very small part of the pregnancy process. And I think that if you just look at if a universe yeah. is going to be born, there's got to be some both genders involved. If there if there if God can have it. Unless it's unless it's an immaculate conception, in which case <laughs> no man is necessary. <laughs> good point. Yeah. Um So, uh, you know, as they say, one man's myth is another man's religion. I think if people are really into learning more about Christian history, there's tons of books on that. I do think it's important to check out uh, Joseph Campbell's work on all the different religions, creation stories and heaven stories. Um, Funny enough, you know, a lot of a lot of the religions have punishments. uh, But I would say in my 
reading um, modern Christianity with the eternal hell is probably one of the worst <laughs> punishments. Um, I mean, it's hard to imagine something worse than eternal torture. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the worst. Um, also, most re- world's religions had flood stories. Um, I do think that, but I do think we're moving into a time uh, because people are leaving the church in droves, which we could, which we're going to get into here. Yeah, um, that in the next 50 years, according to the Pew Research Center, according to different articles we've read, that uh, people are leaving the Christian church. Um, And I think this is, I can't say there's one reason for it. There's many reasons, but I think in terms of the actual church church teachings, I mean, I think part of it's just, you know, the golden age of television and people are busy in the economy, but, Mm -hmm. you know, they don't have time for it. But I also think they aren't making time for it. But I also think that I think that the church getting involved in politics in this sort of way that from a lot of Christians like you said, like really confused you. Like well, this is seems to be going against the teachings of Jesus and right, to right. legislate against people that don't even believe in God that they have to believe this. Like this doesn't seem right. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, totally. So go back to the Trump stuff, the 2016 election, of course. Like I I was I was totally scandalized to learn that the large the majority of Trump's support base was the evangelical Christians, which you know I was working at an evangelical church at the time. And it's it's funny to think now, because it wasn't that long ago, 2016, but at the time, it just seemed weird. It didn't compute to me of, like, why do these Christians like Trump? Trump seems to be, like, the opposite of the the character of Christ, you know? And, like, to, today, it just seems like, obviously, everyone knows evangelicals love Trump. Trump loves evangelicals. That's just the way it goes. But, um yeah, it's uh, and I think it's a huge generational divide. I remember having debates with my parents where the, I was trying to explain to them why <laughs> what's wrong with Trump and it didn't seem to compute and they were trying to explain to me of like no, yeah, he's an imperfect guy, but this is how God's using him the way God uses like Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel or something like that. It's kind of a common talking point people would use um, or he's just a baby Christian but he'll learn or or he's a means to an end. I think is is where most evangelicals come down on it is this idea that, you know, whatever is false, abortion is such a moral emergency that we need to do whatever we, we need to make whatever moral compromises that we have to do to get abortion banned. So, well, I mean, I think strategically they were right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think yeah, they, that they played their hand and it worked. Yeah. Yeah. I think that strategically they were right, but I do think that, um, that was a big issue because I, I heard all sorts of apologists. T- there's whole books written on why he's such a great guy, which ignore literally his entire life story. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> I'm sorry, at least say what you're doing, you know, that's fine. Um, but yeah, that, that was really, that was disturbing for me. But at that time I had been out of the church for so long that it actually didn't surprise me. It just seemed like a natural mm-hmm. evolution of Christianity merging the modern, most mainstream Christianity merging in a, in the U S with nationalism, yeah. with the idea that, uh, America is this sort of mythological place where anybody can do anything, even though right now I would say most of the, most people that are voting that way are either on top or way below economically and will never get to middle class and uh, have a delusion that this is these policies are sometimes somehow helping them, but it's the way it's labeled, right? Going back to metaphor, mm-hmm. Trump is a genius at metaphor and his symbolism, the red hats, genius 
level because it, it's unites you around a simple concept, right? Oh yeah. You, totally. Using fear, you know, law and order, law and order. We need law and order. I won't even go into how many things that laws he's broken because it doesn't matter if you're on top, right? I mean, that argument appeals to people's fear, right? And people are people are very scared these days and they watch news sources that kind of perpetuate this sort of black and white fear-based thinking um, and non-participation in society. So but yes, it is very bizarre thinking that churches, whole churches, endorse this person who uh, is just the opposite of the Christ figure in any sort of way, or even any sort of pastor we would ever, you know, pastors would get thrown out for that. But even business leaders, I wouldn't go to somebody's business if I knew that they, I I, I didn't like him when yeah. I saw him on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous in the 90s. I mean, <laughs> sure. I, I, saw, I heard him interviewed and I was like, this guy's a narcissist. I thought that in the 90s. Am I that smart? I don't really think so. Why am I not? Why am I not noticing this? Probably because I just, <laughs> in my life, I haven't embraced the culture I was given because I didn't mm-hmm. like it. I, I thought for myself as much as I could and got, gained information. But I also have a theory that I think Americans are shedding church is part of more of an evolution of human consciousness and as a nation, because Europe in, in part has mostly shed the church. The church mm-hmm. attendance is down in Christian churches, big time. You know. um, I think that a lot of it is the story of humanity on this life and life on this planet cannot be as simple as many Christian preachers and and priests want to make it. I think Mm -hmm. some churches thrive in small ways because they are those churches that ask big questions and they're, they're, they're coming into these lessons with like really interesting ideas and trying to make personal transformation inner inside of you, your mind and your body and your soul inner transformation through the Christian story. I think that's possible. That's great. I think those churches are doing all right. But mainstream ones who make it political or they twist it together or they just make it into pomp and circumstance or whatever, and there's mm-hmm. no transformation, there's no personal change in these people, I think that's why people are out of it. They're just going, this is way too simplistic. This isn't, you know, and what I, and what I would go is it's, it's more complicated. I don't know the real answer to that. I don't know where we came from. But I also think it's dishonest for me to tell you that I do know where we came from. And I do mm-hmm. think that if the Christian preachers think they do know where that we came from. I think that's, that's an act of faith. That's, that's an assumption. You don't know. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that, that young people are no longer responding to, right? Is the certainty, the lack of humility, uh, and you know, like millennials like myself, I think are, are deconstructing and are bitter because of the sense that, that we were lied to, you know, we, we were, sold the bill of goods. We were told the world is a certain way. We were told certain things about this book. And then we read the book for ourselves and realized that's, that's not the story I was told. I agree. I think that's a very good summary. I I mean, if people want to know more about this, um, a lot of people believe that God and energy or God's are within us and within the universe and that the story of salvation and resurrection is something that happens within us every day and in our relationships Mm -hmm. and that quote unquote heaven and hell are within us in the choices we make. We can try to make towards a heaven or make towards a hell, but the balance is more important. You know, and we see that when people are addicted to drugs and alcohol, like they create a living hell or you lie too much. Go just, just go lie to people, see what happens. You create a living hell. And that there are people like James Hillman, uh, Joseph Campbell, Michael Mead, different psychologists that talk about this sort of thing. Matthew Fox, who's actually an ex-priest, um, he was kicked out by John Paul II for being too feminist, um, hmm. who is actually an Episcopal priest, but I would say he's more of a universalist slash whatever. 
he talks about the story of the cosmos. And Matthew Fox has written many books on the Christian mystics. Um, so if you're interested in that, I love Kent Dobson's book, Bitten by a Camel, because he was straight up evangelical. Like he was in with the 700 Club. Like he knows these people and wow. he has left the church. And he and now he went a little dark. I think he's he. I would say he's almost atheist in his uh, his interpretation of what's going on. But he still preaches at an interfaith uh, ministry uh, in Michigan. Wow. It's a very cool book. I don't go to church on Sunday. Don't get on my knees to pray. Don't memorize the books of the Bible. Got my own special way. I know Jesus loves me. Maybe just a little bit more. I fall down on my knees every Sunday. That's a real least candy store. Well, I've got to be a chocolate Jesus. Make me feel good. I think people want rituals. I, I think that a lot of the Christian churches I've been to do the same thing over and over and over again. The same songs, give money, do this. People want actual something to change within them. And I, I think a lot of people have a conversion where they feel that, but then they don't feel it, you know. And that's because I think we're going over the same text over and over and over. And the same idea over and over and over. And it's mm -hmm. not evolving. We need to see it in different ways. Um, so I think in society, these are my opinions here, people yeah. want rituals, people want ceremonies. Ancient tribes had ceremonies and rituals, and they would be, you know, like the Hopi people, dancing for 14 hours, right? It gets you into a new state. Transcendental meditation, which is getting very popular, which I'm trained in, you know, doing this, doing this mantra gets you in a new state, right? Mm -hmm. uh, people are paying for it. Yoga, yoga is taking off all over the U.S., right? Why? Because if you go do yoga, Jeff, you and I, let's go to do five classes of yoga. By fifth class of yoga, you're going to start feeling better. You're going to be like, wow, I feel great. I want to drink fruit juice now. I, I feel like chilled out. I feel, you know, it's like it changes you physically, right? Yeah. People go to concerts. They want to be blasted with music. They want to have an experience. They want something heightened. They dance in clubs. They read cool book clubs, books that are other than the Bible. They read books. They learn things. They apply it to their lives. They go to festivals. I think about golf and sports too, you know, golf and sports are, I guess golf is a sport, but golf is like its own little thing. It's like a club sports, like football, basketball, tennis, all these things. People are, are looking for this competition, the winner and the loser, but also what did we learn? What did we learn from Kevin Durant when he did that? Right. What did we learn from that coach when he did that? We're looking for stories. We're looking for meaning. People are all obsessed with psilocybin and ketamine, right? Going mm -hmm. on these journeys and ayahuasca people are seeking it because, in my opinion, a lot of Christianity is rote and it's dead and it doesn't even have the Jesus power, whatever that your friend is so into, you know? Yeah, they're they're like they're on a pilgrimage. They're they're searching for meaning. Yeah. To say something so, about uh, transcendental meditation. Yeah. <laughs> that, that reminded me uh, a couple of years ago when I was kind of deconstructing and and like researching all the stuff about mysticism and uh, spirituality and stuff. I, I remember I read a book on transcendental meditation. And at the same time, I was watching this um, sermon series uh, or lecture series on contemplative prayer, uh, which I, and that was 
shocked, surprised to discover that transcendental meditation and contemplative prayer are the exact same practice. Like they are literally the exact same thing. If it's saying a mantra repeatedly in its meditative state, 20 minutes, twice a day, like literally the exact same prescription. The only difference of course is with contemplative prayer. It's you believe in God and your mantra is like the name of Jesus or Yeshua or some like spiritual word and with transcendental meditation your mantra is either you choose your own or you know you go to some pay some guru in la at a conference to to (laughs) acquire your mantra but um just that that to say it's it's fascinating like you know either either um the christians ripped it off and made like a christian rock version of transcendental meditation or people are coming to the same practices and same conclusions starting from different from different starting points you know there's another Finding different uh, ways of coming to the same conclusion, which is fascinating. Well, I would say that again, going back to Joseph Campbell, how many creation stories had the snake? How many old yeah, how many yeah. old um how many of the religions had a flood story? Right. How many they of can't. the tribes have a story about sacrificing your son? Mm-hmm. So many, because in the ancient tribes, they used to send the sons out on the hunt when they were 12 to be a man, because when a woman had their menstruation, they became a woman. But men mm. needed a ceremony. Women mm-hmm. had their own ceremony, but it was obvious. Their body told us. With men, at a certain age, they'd rip them away from their mother, send them out, and some of the kids would get killed by the animals. Wow. But it was, it was a rite of passage to come back. There was also ritual sacrifices in some tribes. There was also other tribes where God was a woman. Gods were women, and the women were in charge. Those tribes weren't very popular with men. Thus, we got our version of Christianity, which is male-dominated, do- do- uh, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here, here's here's some here's some fun stuff with that. Um, I I want to I want to talk to you. I forgot to make my main point, which is transcendental meditation. Transcendental meditation was ripped off, by the way. Oh, from what? Ma- Mahara- Maharashi in the seventies took it from an ancient Indian practice, um, mm. which was chanting, which many monks did in India. They would chant for hours the same mantra. And then yeah. they would get into these altered states and it would help. It's almost like I call it transcendental meditation, defragging your mind because you mm. say the same word so many times it loses meaning. And then eventually, and it's not that simple. So don't try this at home until you've been sure. trained, but you eventually like you, you can't think of all your negative thoughts or your trash, your head trash you were thinking of, but it's cleansing in a way. And, and, and contemplative prayer, I'm sure is the same. Yeah. Um, I love yeah. people like Richard Rohr. He's an active Catholic minister in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He runs the yep. center for um, action and cont- contemplation and action or action mm-hmm. and contemplation, which I love that. Contemplate what you're supposed to do and take action. What yep. I don't want to hear is you on your high horse telling me what I should do. Um, I, I've, I've, I've gone there and done that. So I want to, I want to talk about some positives because you went through your own deconstruction. I went through my deconstruction multiple times, starting mm-hmm. when I was a, like 12 years old. You know, I think that was the first time I left the church. I left it many times. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, yeah. On and off. I mean, I would read. My One of my favorite memories is my high school English teacher. I tried to go. My parents were like, well, you have to come to Easter. I was like, okay. Because I, I got a job, which I was, I, I only worked on Sunday. So I didn't have to go to church because I was tired of it. And I, I just couldn't take it. So, but I one day I went to a church on Easter and I had the great Gatsby and I was reading the great Gatsby in the sermon, because this sermon, you know, this guy was a total Christian nationalist, literally saying, I'm proud to be an American in church, which was insane Mm. to me, not even on Veterans Day. He was the same pastor that made fun of um, 
Christians in North Carolina that made What Would Jesus Drive, which was a movement that Jesus would want mm-hmm. us to take care of the planet. God forbid we take care of the planet. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. that's from Satan, clearly. So he made fun of that. I was reading The Great Gatsby, and my high school English teacher happened to be at church, and she came out, and under her Bible, she had The Great Gatsby, just like I did. And I said, oh, my God, I'm reading that, too. Where are Whoa. you at? She goes, oh, oh, I wasn't, I just, uh, I was just, I just had it with me. So and that was, oh, was hilarious. So that was, that was my that's one amazing. day. I, I went yeah. back to church that time, but I, then I was gone for years again. Um, I even tried, I even joined a group for a little while that was like, they weren't a church group, but they were a group in Phoenix that just focused on the teachings of Jesus. Super cool people. My problem was that they uh, they were amazing, but some of the people in the group, I, I just couldn't keep up with it. There was too many requirements. I had other jobs to do, but they were mm-hmm. they all kind of lived to, in a, the same neighborhood. Truly cool mm-hmm. people, though. Helped the homeless all the time. Um, taught, mentored kids that were had parents that were on drugs and stuff. So it was pretty cool because they weren't dogmatic. Um, so let's talk about positive stuff, Jeff. I think since yeah. you've got your podcast, which I hope people listen to, The Forest and the Trees, it'll be in the show notes. Well, yeah. Let's talk about some positives of spiritual practice. Maybe maybe bring in a little bit of this Rain Wilson stuff we've been hearing about lately with this new book. Um, thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I just I just listened to a, a podcast with uh, the actor Rain Wilson from The Office talking about his, his whole journey with uh, spirituality and religion, which was news to me i didn't i didn't realize he was such a spiritual dude before listening to this podcast but yeah very very interesting enlightening stuff he comes from the baha'i faith is that how you pronounce it it's baha'i yep the baha'i faith um which again i'm not i'm not very familiar with but um baha'i faith means that every religion's prophet was giving us further instructions so they take mm -hmm. they take cues from every single prophet buddha muhammad Christ, all the Hindu gods, and those are the major ones. Obviously, there's the mystery religions, which I forgot to mention earlier that died off. But like, essentially, they keep going, and then they they incorporate elements of all faith. So back mm-hmm. to you. Totally. Cert- yeah, certainly resonated with with a lot of uh, what he has to say, and just and just that general sentiment. You know, the more the more I study the Bible, the more I kind of come to this idea that, yeah, all, all religions are true in a sense. That's something that Joseph Campbell said in that lecture series was all religions are metaphorically true, you know, but none of them are literally true. Totally resonate with that. That, that makes total sense to me in the sense of, you know, in my view, God may or may not actually exist, but if, if he does exist, he is not the specific incarnation of Yahweh, your father, or, um, Allah or Vishnu or what you know, whatever these the more specific vision of God you have, the the less likely it is to be true in my mind. But uh, anyway, just this vague sense of either either some cosmic spirituality or just the inner emotional human experience. You know, you as you study other religions, you can see why um, people come to these similar conclusions. People come up with slightly different stories, variations on the story of humanity, but they come to a similar sense of meaning, of enlightenment. They come to kind of the same conclusion that like, it's all about love. Like we need to love each other. You know, Jesus says that, but a a lot of other gurus have come to a similar conclusion. So, you know, Christianity doesn't have a monopoly on love, uh, you know, which was news to me (laughs) at the time. Uh, And uh, what, well, well, you were talking about Joseph Campbell, but we were Chris talking Campbell, also about yeah. Rain Wilson just came out with mm-hmm. his new book um, about spiritual practices. And so I was mm-hmm. curious about your opinion about 
how yeah. people can have a positive spiritual practice, even if they don't believe in a God. Like we've, you've said him a few times, right? And I've mm. said that. And right, that's, I'm right. deconstructing that because the Christian God basically comes from the sky God model, not unlike Zeus, um, who is a guy who birthed uh, Zeus. Zeus birthed his children out of his own forehead, where, mm-hmm. where Christ didn't birth anybody. Christ was the son, supposedly, of a sky God who had like 20 different names um, through some virgin birth, right? So, supposedly. Yeah. So, um, you know, that, that being said, how do people have a a a spiritual practice that's a positive thing where they can show love to others like you said like almost all of the major religions in their texts and and a lot of these spiritual traditions that aren't even the major religions come up with these ideas love your neighbor love your enemies um don't hate people don't um don't use your power in a corrupt way be generous to the poor um i believe in the bible it says um, love the orphan and the widow for that is true religion and and minister to them, right? Mm-hmm. Share your resources. Christ spent his time yelling at the Pharisees for most of the gospels who were the religious people of uh, Israel and hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and a bunch of idiotic fishermen who smelled like mm-hmm. that's who he hung out with. He wasn't trying to climb the echelons of society in the yeah. story. So how do we how do we have a good spiritual practice? It's not one answer. I'm just right, right. In terms you. of yeah, that's it's, it's hard for me to answer because I, I feel like I'm I'm really bad at having a spiritual practice. Like okay. every time every time I meditate, I I you know first I learned that I'm really bad at meditating because I have a really hard time focusing and not not getting distracted, of course. But every every time I successfully you know, find some kind of quietness within my soul, I, I think, oh man, this is great. I should do this more often. I suppose probably probably the closest thing I have to do spiritual practice is um, getting out in nature. You know, going going on hikes. You know, finding some solitude, finding some quietness, observing a sunset, or just just the enjoyment uh, of being outside in the natural elements. You know, that that's something I've reflected on a lot because I've I've always enjoyed being out in nature. And years ago, as a Christian, I would I would go on hikes and they'd be like prayer walks, and I would think I'm I'm communing with God and the the feelings of transcendence and bliss and whatever that I would feel, I would think this is the presence of the Holy Spirit right now. And as, as I look back, you know, it's, I, I can still have those kinds of um, transcendent emotional feelings, even though I don't like believe in Christianity the way that I did. And so it's interesting to look back of like, what was that? What were those feelings? And I think that is just this more general amorphous spiritual experience. But again, it's like you, you really want to avoid being prescriptive, I suppose, because the same practice doesn't work for everyone. You know, I, there's a lot of people who just don't like to go on hikes. They don't like going outside, but maybe maybe meditation is better for them or, or some other spiritual practice I'm not thinking of. Right. And I, I don't know the answer to that either, but I mean...
as a therapist, I would say practice means you actually do something. You actually mm -hmm. participate. It's personal or, mm -hmm. you know, private or with a group of people. Uh, instead of working, and, and, well, this would not be a practice. Here's a here's a not thing I would say. Okay. Working on trying to make people believe that your religion is best and sending them postcards in the mail that say that you're doomed if you don't repent, which I got one today. Um, that's <laughs> yeah. not a practice. And having an obsession that you have the right answer or need to find the right answer is also not a practice. That is what I would call becoming to become a little obsessive compulsive. I say this kind of as a joke because I did get a weird postcard about a ticket to heaven and how I should repent before it's too late. Yeah. It's 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 about better cash that in, Paul. Yeah, it's uh it's a ticket to heaven, but you have to you have to you have to cash it in. Um so I did uh, read this and it's about the most simplistic version of Christianity I've ever heard in my life. It's about mm, yeah eight to twelve sentences. It scares you it tells you God's watching you. It tells you that everyone who's rebelled against God is going to be in trouble. You need to repent and believe and trust or else here's the website. So like this sort of thing is a turn yeah. off. Uh, I, I, I feel sad that people do that, but that's not a, that's not a spiritual practice for me. Here's the thing. I, I have been deconstructing my religion for so long that I find value in all religions. Mm -hmm. I find value in spirituality. I found I find value in my friends that are atheists because this mm -hmm. moment is so sacred to them. Because if there is nothing after this, then I want to spend every moment being intentional and loving as I can, which is a hard thing to do because humans are imperfect, right? We we screw up all the time, even if we want to do something. We don't do it right. Mm -hmm. um, I, I found that I have friends that are Hindu. I have friends that are Muslim. I have mm -hmm. friends that are Jewish. And I find value in things they have to say and and religion and, and things they have been taught in their upbringing. I have a, um, you know, I, I like, I wear these beads. These are like Buddhist beads that I'm wearing right now. Mm. And it's not because I, I'm a Buddhist. I'm not. I, I love a lot of Buddhist. I've listened to a lot of Buddhist podcasts. I've read a lot of Buddhist texts. But yeah. I, I find the idea is that life is suffering to be more honest. I mean, it actually says a lot of that in Genesis, you know, life is suffering, right? Oh, but, totally. But in the deliverance gospel, it gets a little bit weirder. But um. Mm -hmm. So I find that you've got to find what resonates with you. For me, meditation has been useful. Nature has been useful. Um, communing with other people and having an intentional loving experience. Um, working on overcoming uh, hatred towards people that I think are uh, you know, hurting the environment or the country. Uh, mm -hmm. By not hating them, by trying to love people and understand them. That Even if I disagree with them, that's a spiritual practice for me. Um, trying to love people that I don't believe has ever, have ever earned my love, um, ha mm -hmm. I believe is a spiritual practice for me. Doing therapy and helping heal people that have opposite belief systems from me. Oh, yeah. Trying to help them feel better, no matter who they are, or even people that have done horrific things. I've dealt with people that have committed horrific crimes and trying to help them, no matter what, is a spiritual practice for me. I still, for fun, um, my, my partner and I will pray. I mean, I don't know what we're exactly praying to. Right. right? I right. believe that there's a universal God-like force that is genderless. I just don't know what that means. I believe mm -hmm. there's a spiritual force. I believe there's some type of collective unconscious. I also believe there's a lot of cognitive bias, and I could be falling victim to that. I don't know. But I've had weird experiences where I've been talking about a friend I haven't talked to in 16 months, and they call or text me within five minutes. What's that? I don't know. 
There's people mm. that study that sort of phenomenon, right? That sort yeah. of coincidental synchronicities. I believe in synchronicities. I think they happen when you look for them, right? And so what is that? I don't know. But I definitely think if there's anything that is God, I think God is a connection and God is love. And so if I can find connections or God's our love, I don't know. I don't really believe in monotheism mm-hmm. either. I don't. Yeah, um, yeah. And if you can see the sacred divinity in an animal and a person and you aren't judging them, I think that is a spiritual practice, right? If I can, if I can see my fellow person at Trader Joe's or a homeless person on the street and think, they are also a, a suffering human and I should treat them with dignity and respect. That's a spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think that so many things can be, I think, uh, but I, I think you have to figure out what it is for yourself. And if you need guidance, there's people that help this spiritual coaches. If you need a religion, go for it. I wouldn't, I don't fully recommend. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't recommend it. Christianity. I don't yeah. believe in people having control and power over you and your body. I don't think that that's um, healthy. I think that is the same violence that's in domestic violence, but it's just in nicer words with better buildings and more budgets. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've interviewed people that believe in the infinite mind, that it's all just a bunch of energy and our minds are infinite. I don't know what the answers are, to be honest. I, I just think I think seeking them is interesting. But if I seek them to be right, that's not a spiritual practice. That's an obsession, right? That's me dealing with my death anxiety. That's me dealing with my sense of specialness. Um, I don't think we're called to be, I think we're called to be who we are and be unique, but I don't think we're called to be special and think that we're elitist over other people. I think the moment that if you you think you're practicing a spiritual practice and you believe you're better than someone else, you're not practicing a spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. And that's from all the religious stuff I've read in the Bible and everything else I've been involved in. Um, and so that's kind of what I've, I've thought about that. Um, I, 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 I think it's evolving. So don't quote me. Don't cherry pick quotes out of this podcast. I, I think it's evolving. And I, I, I am interested. I would love for the Christian church to evolve into a loving thing you know more universalist i don't think it's going to but (laughs) i just want to say from my perspective everything we've said on this podcast is canon so no cherry picking allowed (laughs) this is a sacred document (laughs) i love it um so what are you learning Uh, my last question which you did kind of write about uh in here when i asked you this what are you learning from doing a podcast where you're the skeptic and jeremy's the preacher on the forest and the trees yeah i I guess, I guess that's another thing, as I would say, like, perhaps that's a spiritual practice for me now of just, like, re-exploring religion, re-exploring the Bible from a different perspective. You know, like, when when I believe this Bible was a sacred text that's perfect, free of contradiction, all that stuff, that then it was a much more rigid, difficult thing to grapple with. But, now, you know, now it's like, like I said, you can cherry pick, you can... Um, take the stuff that works, leave the rest. Now it's a very freeing, very enlightening, fascinating document that I've just, I enjoy it. You know, I'm doing the podcast for fun because I was curious about the Bible. I wanted to explore it. And I'm, yeah, I'm learning that there's a lot of richness and a lot of diversity within Christianity. Like, I mean, I, I knew that before, I suppose, but, you know, I, I think there, there certainly was a side of me that wanted to create this podcast as kind of like atheist content, right? Like I wanted to rake Christians over the coals for how could you really believe all this stuff? And I'll say like, I'm, you know, I don't agree with everything Jeremy believes in obviously, but I'm 
impressed with a lot of his answers. A lot of his answers um, do come from a place of love and hope and optimism and just, you know, very just beautiful worldview that I love. I'd say like probably the the biggest thing, my biggest takeaway so far is probably with the idea of universalism because I was familiar with with universalism. I knew it existed before, but as a Christian, I guess I just I never took it seriously. I always thought that that can't be true. That's just wishful thinking. You know, people the people who are universalists are not real Christians. So that that's been really fun um talking to Jeremy about his uh, journey and going from like someone who used to believe in eternal conscious torment to annihilationism all the way to the universalism reading that all shall be saved by David Bentley Hart and just having more of these types of conversations. Um, yeah. Like we talked about earlier in the show with all the, the hell stuff, um, believing that God is loves us enough to not torture us forever is a very beautiful and freeing thought for me. Right. And I think that's, I think that's beautiful. You're being very open about your journey. And I love that. Um, and I, I think that, I think it's pretty cool. I think people should listen to your podcast, especially if they're interested. It's super cool to hear you and Jeremy go back and forth. I've been loving the podcast and going through all, you're going through whole bu- books of the Bible. It's super cool. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. I love as a, as a therapist who is a big Carl Jung nerd, I would encourage mm-hmm. people to read. A, there's a lot of, now Jung is really hard to read. I, I can hardly read, I can read like a chapter in a month of his. It's very hard. But a lot of people that are in the Jungian schools have written bo- uh, books about um, the, uh, the way to interpret the Bible. Like there's a whole book about, and there's a whole series on Job, right? The whole book of Job and the Jungian yeah, interpretation yeah. and the Bible as a dream, uh, which is a book. That was written recently, I believe, uh, by Murray Stein and, um, you know, the Bible as metaphor. Um, mm-hmm. Those are super cool books because the same thing, Jungians love fairy tales, you know, uh, and so they always are learning from the fairy tales. But I think it's cool to learn um, about uh, the bible in metaphorical senses as well if you're interested right especially if you've been out of the religion for a while if you're in the religion i mean good for you i but i mean i hope that you use it in a way that's a practice instead of a a weapon um Mm -hmm. that's kind of my biggest uh my biggest position of this uh is i i don't trust your humility uh or or a person that believes it's the one I, i the first thing i say is if somebody believes they have the one full truth you're either trying to sell me something or you're ignorant, or you haven't done any inner work, or you're in a cult. I, mm-hmm. I just, I just don't think it. It's the same thing as QAnon during the election. People kept saying, "Oh, the you know, there's the one truth. I know it's true, and it, it, I want to convince myself." That's cognitive bias. Bias. Um, if you don't know what spiritual bypassing is, people look it up. If you don't know what being in a cult is, we've got links in the show notes for that. But I, I think there's a lot of positive things that can come out of religion and spirituality if people do inner work and self-reflection again Mm -hmm. are we using our religion to conquer and colonize people and start wars and start fights among our neighbors or are we actually trying to act like a christ or a saint francis i have a whole podcast on saint francis um which i believe is one of the first 30 podcasts about saint francis of assisi where i interview a catholic bishop who i'm friends with a very cool episode if you're into learning about his life um but I think I think we've learned a lot, and there was so much more. I think we had like 24 pages of notes, so we might have to do this again sometime. 
but yeah. I appreciate I appreciate your time on this, Jeff. Is there any closing uh, statements or, or things you want to make? Oh man, just just so much. I guess I guess I'll I'll just reiterate again. I think there there are ways of interpreting the Bible that are more open minded, more um, enlightenment focused, more introspective. As you were talking about all that stuff, it was making me think of the verse in Romans that says, "Be transformed by the renewing of your mind." Or another translation says, "Changing the way you think." And I think that's that's so important for people to think critically about the worldview they were brought up with and um, figure out just what it means to them rather than just accepting, you know, whatever dogma they were fed and, and being unchanging in that. And uh, similarly with like the teachings of Jesus, I, th- I think about like, what is, what is Jesus talking about when he says the kingdom is now, or the kingdom is within you? I think that can be interpreted as a, a type of enlightenment in the idea that, um, uh, uh, Joseph Campbell was talking about like true happiness, true enlightenment is is just being in the present moment, right? Like accepting what whatever circumstances you are in right now. And I think that again, like we were talking about, these are people using different stories, different metaphors, different ways of saying the same thing about the human condition. So. Yeah, I agree with that. And being present is, of course, something that's very hard to do. A lot of people use mindfulness, they use therapy, they use exercise, they use different techniques. But being present <laughs> in your life from a mental health standpoint means that you treat, you try to take off the, your defensive lens and treat somebody and treat yourself with respect and hopefully treat another person with respect. Right. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not holding up a delusion about them being an infidel. We're not holding up. a. We're not hating on them because they have some different belief system than us. Being fully present means accepting yourself as a frail human that's going to die. Right. Mm-hmm. That is living on a planet that has lots of suffering and problems and weird weather patterns and all of that. And being fully present brings us to f- actually feeling our body, because in the Western Consciousness, we have a very big obsession with thinking and belief systems and not so much on feeling our intuition and our feelings, which we talk about when you talk about becoming a vegan, mm-hmm. you know, you actually feel your feelings about killing an animal. There's a lot of rationalization involved. And I know that because I do eat animals, but I've also been a vegetarian and I know that I am actively killing animals. And I know that the animals have feelings. I know this. We, right, we right. justify it with our quote unquote science, which has been debunked. The animals don't have feelings. They do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been debunked. But I think, you know, like anything, anything good, meaning, you know, Bible verses, churches, spirituality, yoga, mindfulness, anything we've talked about can be co-opted for power. Any mm-hmm. position could be co-opted for power. The problem with spirituality and religion is is often people give it immediate authority when it's not deserved. And they do that because they say they have the answers to everything. So coming back to the point, Jeff and I don't know the answers, but we're Jeff is actively engaging in it. Check out his podcast. I have kind of remained silent on this issue. So we'll see what kind of emails I get, but I respect any of you who are doing spiritual practices and religion. I don't respect people trying to shove it down people's throats and um, you know, become militant or violent about it. I don't respect violence. I'm an anti-violence person. As you know, I have the violence. I'm working on the national violence prevention hotline. Um, 
And I hope that people get something out of this and I'm excited to see what feedback we get. <laughs> I'm excited too. Yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and uh, yeah, at, at the risk of going on for another two hours, yeah. we better, we better, we better, we better wrap, wrap it up. up here, huh? All right. All right. So, uh, you know, they, they used to say in the, in the uh, Lutheran church, peace be with you, Jeff. Oh yeah, and and also with you. I, I, you. I will say uh, thank you, <laughs> thank you very much for having me on. Like I said, this has been so much fun. Just just having a conversation, talking to you. We didn't even mention that how we met. We met at church, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about this. Okay, so this is actually a funny story. We'll just yeah. close with this. This is a yeah. this is a fun joke. So this is the first time I've been to a church since a wedding. This is probably five years. Uh, I haven't been to a church, but uh, there's an excellent artist named Damien Hardo who was mm-hmm. on tour here and he came to Phoenix and he was supposed to play this punk rock venue called the trunk space, but yeah. they sold too many tickets. And this church down on third street in Phoenix is partner with trunk space, uh, to help the youth, you know, it's a non-alcohol space to like help the mm-hmm. youth find something to do and listen to music and not get into drugs and alcohol. And they moved the church or they moved the concert into the sanctuary of this church with a cross behind it and the speakers and the pews and so oh, yeah jeff we and i confused, yeah jeff and i met because we have a mutual friend and we met at a brewery and we walked over to the church mm-hmm. with our friends a bunch of us like it must have been seven or eight of us in this group um and we hadn't i hadn't met jeff before and i met a bunch of other people and we were literally at church watching damien huardo perform these beautiful songs which actually quite sound quite angelic i've actually used some of his songs in my podcast check him out damien huardo yeah. um and we laughed a lot because it was a very non-holy um, or sacred evening, but yet it was sacred, right? There it was, was no sacred, religion. Yeah. There yeah. was no religion brought up. There was no sermon. It was just pe- two people playing guitar. He had an opener. It was really an interesting lady who sang. Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful and it was sacred and it wasn't a church building. And it, and it was so cool uh, to see all these mu- uh, you know, music lovers, old and young, crowding into a church to see Damien Huardo with no sermon was one. And the sermon was in the lyrics. It was beautiful. Mm. Mm. I felt transformed. Me too. Yeah. I, I loved it. I thought it was a beautiful venue. Couldn't, couldn't have asked for a better one. Yeah. It was, it was a spiritual experience if there so ever was one. That's a synchronicity right there. Mm-hmm. We met and Jeff goes, Oh yeah. And by the way, I have a podcast, which is, you know, a way to meet people. I'm joking. Yeah. Everyone, but I mean, we were like, Hey, we button. got a podcast and you gave me a button of the forest mm-hmm. and the trees. And, uh, then I was like, you know, that's funny. I have a podcast. I know you won't maybe believe me cause I'm acting like a wild man out here right now, but I do. And it's a serious podcast. So, um, yeah, yeah. That was another thing of like <laughs> you in real life versus you on the podcast. <laughs> you can pull totally different people. Like, Oh yeah. You're, you're Paul on the podcast, but you were Saul out in the world. Oh yeah, yeah, that's my joke, actually. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I actually, that's my, uh, that's my, that's my joke is I'm Saul sometimes, and then I'm Paul when I'm in the yeah, office. Yeah, yeah. So, true, um, true conversion. <laughs> yeah, true conversion. Well, that's that's a lot of psychological work to to split two personas like that. Yeah. So, but yeah, I'm looking forward to the next conversation. Maybe. Um, I'll come on your podcast sometime or oh, you'll come back, yeah. uh, come back and I'll interview you in the spring. So, yeah, no, that, that'd be great. Yeah. We'd, we'd love to have you on sometime and yeah, I'd love to come back and talk to you anytime because it's been so much fun. Awesome.
never tried to imagine the shape of God. Are they a butterfly or a big amorphous star? Do you believe in a higher power that cannot be explained? The spiral in the sunflower, the sadness of the and there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Or take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. As most of you know, I am passionate about preventing future violence in the United States. My colleagues and I have started a nonprofit called the National Violence Prevention Hotline, a 501c3 organization. We are endeavoring to gain funding and collaborators so that we can start a 24-7 hotline and chat line to reach potential perpetrators before they act violently. It is a bold effort to save lives and curb violence by working to connect with potential offenders while they are in the planning stages of violence, help to de-escalate them, and provide resources so that they can get appropriate professional help. The National Violence Prevention Hotline is looking to open up a conversation about violence in society, the causes, and the solutions. You can learn more by visiting our website, www.violencepreventionhotline.org. Join us online by signing our petition on the website, sharing the website with your network of people, donating to the cause if you like, and you can now even write your congressperson from our website with a simple form. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you are a therapist looking for ethical and excellent medical billing services, check out therapistbillingservicesllc.com. That's www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. Billing services created by therapists for therapists. If you're looking for an EMDR International Association consultant, I am a consultant and I can provide you the 20 hours you need to become EMDRIA certified. I have groups online and in person, and I do individual consultation. Just send me a message at the website and I'll get back to you. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy, check out the great training opportunities with EMDR Training Solutions. I've worked with them before and they are phenomenal, so register today. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment at a local counseling center in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these are based on the literature they have read and the experience in their fields, this should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you're in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. You can also text 741741 and a live trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org? You can order from the comfort of your own home online while supporting local brick-and-mortar businesses near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your national or local therapy organization, such as the American Counseling Association or the American Mental Health Counselors Association, please get involved. At least pay the dues 
It will help the lobbyists in our field keep us from becoming gig workers. And of course, there's the bonus of increasing mental health education around the United States and helping people understand what counseling is and promoting best practices within our profession. Until next time, I wish you all a safe and peaceful week. I'm not the kind of guy that goes to church on Sunday. I'd rather spend my time worshiping in my own way. Walking in the woods, waiting in the river, breathing in the mountain air. Ooh, when I feel that pain brushing my fingers, I know that you'll be there. And when I'm alone, oil painting in my garage, I let my colors flow.